buttoned that up. I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I've been stretching. Right. Hey, that was a fucking. That was a sick podcast with Nigel Birch and Veteran Hunts Australia. Um, guys, you're gonna have to suffer through this, but we've never done an advert that doesn't need spruiking. Starting next Monday, barbecue to remember com goes live. Barbecue to Remember is the campaign that Swiss Eight's put together. We're partnered with the RSLs. Uh, federal government's having a barbie. It's all for Remembrance Day. We missed Anzac Day this year. We're not fucking missing Remembrance Day. We wanted to do something, and we were like, all right, COVID might still be in effect. It might not. What can we do to bring people together, have a beer, talk shit, mental health the way that knock-around dudes do, and that is having a barbecue. So we put together the campaign. It's called A Barbecue to Remember. Uh, you'll find all the info on Swiss 8 social media. Uh, Monday, the 5th of October, barbecue, B-B-Q-T-O, remember.com goes live. Go and have a look. All the info's on there. And the campaign's going to get a little bit sexy the next weekend. We're doing a barbecue with Wendell Saylor. Um, mate, it's good to have you on the show anyway. Uh, you, with, a, with an experience in, I read your bio, holy shit. I don't think anything in the shooting, hunting uh outdoors environment that you haven't been gone and done in your time on this planet uh do you want to take us through a little bit about that yourself as opposed to me reading your bio um well there's still plenty to do out there there's a, there's a world of hunting out there um way more than i'll ever get to do in my lifetime but uh, i'll give it a try you know we'll get through as much as we can in the next few years while i'm still able to do it yeah. um uh you guys a lot younger you can you can like the world's your oyster at the moment with hunting that you can go anywhere and do anything pretty well you know what i mean so once we get through the COVID thing um things will open up so it'll be good uh, i mean we had planned we had trips planned this year to africa to the uk and to new zealand new zealand was to hook some things up for veteran hunts uh, and some of the others too but there was also some personal stuff in there um we've just virtually had to shelve that this year but so next year could be full on um apart from work as well it's trying to fit all that stuff in so uh bio wise um yeah virtually i guess hunting since i was probably six seven eight years old um in one aspect or another i mean like you know we lived in the uk at that time until i was 10 years old so we migrated to australia and at that particular time you know we had a forest living like close to where we lived um as a young kids we got um the older boys in our group to go and buy bows and arrows, which we were way too young to have. Parents didn't know about them. <laughs> and uh, they went and bought all the stuff we needed and we first used to go hunting in the forest. Um, and that was my introduction to hunting, the bunch of rebellious teenagers who were the older ones of our group and, and there was a few younger ones in there too. So, um, you know, it was the normal rabbits, squirrels, that sort of stuff. Um, Probably didn't advance too much on that in the UK, but then when we came to Australia, on as a, Australia's a huge opportunity place for hunting. Outdoors, you want to grow up here. You probably don't want to grow up in the UK. Anything you do like that in the UK is big money. So hunting in the UK and Europe, expensive. And that's to do with culture and heritage, which we can probably go through in this potty a bit later on. Um, Australian culture and heritage has primarily been uh, feral species in this country and so there's been for want of a better terminology open slather really um, so does that make it when we talk about um feral shooting does that has it been yep. given it a bad name guys just swinging off the back <clears throat> of a shotgun smashing tinnies and 
shooting out the back of a ute? Um, sometimes. I mean, you know, we, we've cleaned our act up over the last 40 years in Australia a fair bit. And that has an awful lot to do with the, the anti-side of hunting and firearms, making us actually clean our act up. So in some ways, they, they have a purpose in, in hunting, believe it or not, by keeping us honest, keeping everything clean. Uh, getting our act together, really, and making sure that what we do is is purposeful and honourable, and you know we do it well and we're ethical about it. Um, so I don't always look at the the anti side of things as a negative. It's more or less something you can bounce off and keep what you do on track. You know what I mean? And make sure we're doing that right. Um, my bio coming to Australia um, came to South Australia when I was ten years old. And, you know, my father would take us out hunting. He eventually got out of hunting himself not many, not many years after that. Um, but I carried on and I've never stopped since. Uh, and like I said, being in Australia and around in an environment where there's, there's lots of other people that hunt, you know, especially in those years, in the 70s and 80s, um, probably wasn't deemed uh, like it is now as... Uh, unethical or you know we've got a bad image at some stages here now in certain arenas like with the general public we don't have an image but you know it can easily be tainted um i can't understand um ex i mean this is a privileged life we're living now we're living we've got supermarkets when i mean let's go back eight early 1900s 1920s people mm. still hunted and prior to that if you didn't hunt Mm. you probably weren't alive. Like, you... <laughs> you were hungry. You were going to well, be hungry. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, hunting is the is sure. the historical norm, and now yeah. in the last hundred years, it's now unethical to hunt, except it's socially acceptable to go and get a steak from the shopping centre. It's probably been the last 50, I'd say. I mean, yeah. up until then, even after the Second World War, if you really wanted meat on the table, apart from vegetables, you probably went out and got it yourself. Um... We've, we've gone away from that, becoming a very urban society rather than rural. So we're changing from a rural to an urban society. And in, in the process of doing that, you know, we lose that contact with, with nature, with, with the land, with providing your own food rather than buying your own food. So that's been a huge focus change for the way hunters are perceived. Uh, so now we've not become the, oh, you're providing for the table, you are out there shooting whatever you can see. Um, but that's only a perception that's probably portrayed by the anti-hunters. And unfortunately for the odd few that go out and actually do it and get caught doing it, and, and that's really detrimental for the rest of us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things. You know, we've got to clean our act up. Like I said, in, in the 70s and 80s, we were way beyond the eight ball against anti-hunting and anti-firearms people. Um, they had it all over us, really, because um, we weren't structured in, in hunting them. We had no ethical boundaries put out by organisations like the SSAA do now. You know, we've, we've adhered to overseas um, sort of ideas on that where we have to have a mandate that we put out there and, and push forward our ethical bound, uh, you know, beliefs and that as to what we should hunt, how we should hunt it how we should look after the land uh, and the nature in it. Um, we're trying to do that better now, but I mean, you know, 
a lot of things happened in that sort of late 80s period where the anti-hunting fraternity lost their way. They were doing things that were they got caught out for, and in the end, that discredited them for quite some time. What were they doing? Uh, the anti What were they doing? Oh, look, there's incidents where they'd go out and, you know, we, we hunt ducks here a lot in South Australia. In fact, some of the duck shoots we go on are, are quite extensive duck shoots. We can have six, 700 hunters on a, on a duck shoot. Um, and you can hunt a lot of ducks in a day. But, I mean, when you consider you might hunt a few thousand ducks in two hours on a morning, when you consider in those areas the Department of Wildlife can see a million ducks flying to those areas in one day, you're, t- you're taking such a small fraction of, of, of the population out of that. And when you consider the amount of ducks that actually go in a bad year up north and die from lack of water, that is just a fraction. Um, so the anti-hunters were actually getting caught actually killing illegal ducks, one from not allowed to shoot, and then bringing them to, to be shown during the duck season and say, look, hunters are shooting these ducks. We found them. They're dead. Uh, you know, maybe they've thrown them in the reeds. And then the Department of Conservation were grabbing hold of some of these ducks and actually getting them tested. And they'd been killed and, and they'd been dead for some time. Um, so we, even the lefties throw out a false flag campaign every yeah, year. Yeah, they were killing them out of season and doing it themselves, you know. And, you know, it was just, they, there was a time when that just that sort of thing was happening just to discredit, you know, genuine hunters. And, um, well, that did nothing for them and did everything for us, you know. And But it, we also needed to clean our act up. You know, we had... Uh, like I said, the hunting heritage and, and uh, lifestyle here was so much different to what you have in Europe, America, Africa. Conservation is light years ahead of our conservation here. So when you try and talk conservation here, most people just put their hand up and they don't want to hear. They even get that from government departments. Um, in Africa, you know, spending time there, they're light years ahead of us. Like Not in a lot of ways, but certainly in conservation of animals and wildlife they are. Uh, U.S. is, once again, probably ahead of them, and, and Europe very much so. Um, like I said, we built our hunting heritage here around feral species that were introduced to provide meat for the country um, in hard times. And so, realistically, with no game laws um, dictating when and how you have to hunt those species, it's been virtually left up to the general public to go out and work out their own ideas. And yeah, you can see the farmers, mate. They're, oh, I've got a couple of mates with property out west in Queensland. Yeah. And they're pulling their hair out from just pigs. They can shoot three, four hundred pigs over a week. And they're like, we're not even touching it. We're not even touching the thousand that ruin water holes and uh, in just plague proportions. They're pulling their hair. They have no idea yeah, how to get around I, it. I'm getting some weird feedback there for, from you guys on your vocals, Anthony. Um, I, I think I got the question, though. Um, yeah, I mean, there's that there's that sort of situation here where this is a great country. There's there's no, you know, um, carnivores here that go out and predate on like rabbits. I mean, yes, we introduced foxes, which kept some of the rabbit population down. But generally, once you introduce things like goats and pigs, there's nothing that actually killed those things out in the wild and kept the numbers down. So it was realistically up to hunters and just natural times, I guess, and climate uh, to keep those numbers down. Um, you know, bad years would kill some off if it was drought years. Um, but apart from that, they just bred out of control. We've got more camels in this country than they've got in the Middle East. I mean, Actually, so... Yeah, I heard about that. We've got more camels in Australia than they've got... The... Yeah, We don't yeah, kill them, we milk them. 
Yeah, it's bizarre, but it, we have. And, I mean, that's just an indication of the same thing with most other species. You know, there's islands off, off the coast of Australia where goats were released, and the goats have just had a, an open time there. I mean, it's, it's great. You know, there's nothing to prey on them, and, and so, therefore, they've, they've just bred out of all sort of numbers. Same sort of thing happened in New Zealand with, with releases there of animals. Play proportions back in the 50s and 60s. You may have seen footage of that. Um, just pop the other headphone in here. Um, yeah, so I mean, like like we were saying before, Australia's really got no predators. It, it's sort of uh, the the releases of feral animals here or game animals that they were seen to be when they were brought in uh, have just gone unchecked, really. Um, and that's given us problems unique to Australia that probably other countries don't have. Um, and having no game laws, uh, and, and that's also a bit of a can of worms as well, because some some states have game laws. We used to have game laws here in South Australia until 1965 when they squash those. Um, when we had game laws in, in place, it, it helped a lot with uh, managing the populations uh, and managing herds and managing that sort of thing um, of some species. Um, but Australia, like I said, is quite unique in the way of controlling its wild animals and not the native ones. Um, so if that comes down to hunters and, you know, we've had an increase in hunters over the years uh, there's probably no more, there's probably never been a time in Australian culture where there's more hunters than there is now. A lot of people, and that's due to social media, a lot with young people taking up hunting, which is great. It gives you a, a, a you could say, an army of people you can utilise to help get out there and, and cull populations and help keep them under control. It's whether we utilise that, that group of people correctly uh, and efficiently. So when you talk about game laws, because... Um... I mean, as close as I am to hunting is I've got guns and we go and shoot. We do feral. I'm still, uh, up until recently, I was still in the army. So yep. um, so w going stalking and, and reliving my heyday was, was something that wasn't really in my wheelhouse currently, but it's something I want to get into once the nostalgia kicks in. Yep. Uh, and going proper hunting, stalking, I think that'll be sick. Yeah. Um, but for, when we talk about game laws, mm -hmm. we're talking about, like like seasonal things, what to shoot, when to shoot, and that allows everyone to go in and shoot? Is that how we, like, I wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. Okay, so game laws. Um, each state, unfortunately, is different. So let's take somewhere like Victoria, probably the most progressive state, I hate to say it in Australia, for, uh, for game laws, but it probably is. Uh, their Department of Conservation, through necessity in some ways because of, the the terrain there and the need to get people to help them control species they've set up game laws in that state where uh, you can pay a fee to the department of conservation uh to get a deer license say and then you can go deer hunting and pretty well i think the laws there in in victoria at the moment i think you can hunt all year round but you may there may be one month you can't hunt samba deer in victoria or deer um that is great because there's not really any other state in Australia that does that. In South Australia, we had protected species of deer or, or game laws to protect deer species uh, right up until 1965. And then they, they squashed the moratorium on that and said, there's no more game laws now. There's no closed seasons. There's no open seasons. There's no um, real determination to, to sort of plan and manage these herds. We're just going to leave it open slather and let people do what they want to do. Uh, and within probably the space of two or three years in this state uh, from 65, that used to have probably the best fallow deer herds in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, we went from that to virtually no deer. 
because people were just allowed to go out and just shoot what they wanted to shoot. Um, and that comes down to the fact, you know, the politics of it is the fact that a lot of these animals are introduced. So the Department of Conservation and, and those sort of places here in Australia, they don't really want the animals here in the first place. So eradication of, of introduced species and game animals doesn't really come onto their radar. They don't care about them, they don't want them, and they're happy for that to happen. Um, as hunters, we want to keep them here, um, but we do want to manage them. So uh, it, it's always been a bargaining chip between the two groups, the, the hunting and the conservation, as to how we go about that. And we really haven't got our act together in regards to that because there's no coordination between hunters or very little here between hunters uh, who understand quite often how you go about managing herds and that type of thing and, and improving herds uh, and conservation that really have no experience in that here at all. It, it, Does the SSAA still have a decent reach nationally? Like, I mean... The, the in 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 weaponizing directing and and allowing hunters to come together and and or is it just become a uh there are branches of the SSAA that actually are involved in actually working with the government and going culling species in national parks and things like that they've got that set up i think in the last 20 years that's happened that isn't huge um and we don't do that anywhere near the amount we need to to help the departments of conservations right across the country in different states keep numbers under control in fact, we probably don't have, if we're realistic about it, the amount of hunters in this country to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, you're always going to have to look at other means and methods to actually keep animals under control apart from hunting as well. Um, so it's, it's a complicated process in this country trying to work out a, a viable, soluble sort of means of um, producing hunting for hunters keeping people like the average person happy about it, farmers happy about it, Department of Conservation happy about it. There's a lot of people to keep, you know, land management habitat. You've got to bring all that in, but there's no group really that sort of sits down together and discusses on a nationwide basis how you go about doing that in Australia. Contrary to, you know, places like, say, Germany, UK, France, uh, Poland, places like that, that, that have stringent game laws on, on their species. And they sit down, the hunters sit down with regulatory bodies and the government bodies, and they, they work out how they're going to manage their herds. We don't really have an, an initiative here to do that because we don't really care too much about them, to be honest. You know, like... That's, uh, go on. That's what I was going to ask. Is it, is, it, is it Australia doesn't have those rules because it's not a big enough problem yet? No, no, it's a big enough problem, but we don't have those rules because... Like I said, Department of Conservation would prefer no feral species in Australia. Hunters want some game animals to hunt. And, you know, we see that also because we're restricted to actually hunting native species here. If you want to go out and procure natural meat from the wild, we rely, our hunters rely on that to actually go and hunt game species or introduce species. And we're in conflict all the time with Department of Conservation, always have been, with the fact that Australia really doesn't want them. They don't want them here. They, if they could eradicate all the species that were introduced tomorrow, they'd do it. Um, and it would only help the native species and the habitat in this country. But as hunters, well, naturally, we don't want that. You know, we're, we're fighting to maintain some semblance of, of a hunting culture or develop one here. And for that, we need species to hunt. Because so, we're talking, yeah, because we're talking um, 
when you want to keep these species and these game animals when there is a stalk and you have to walk because you uh walk in you uh eat what you you know you slaughter everything and you eat what you kill because that's a whole nother process that you sort of do with veteran hunts isn't it and yeah i think that process of learning that skill yep uh and we're about to get into like that 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 mental health piece but Hmm. uh when you go from i'm eating this and it I had to walk 20 Ks. I had to sit on a hill in the pissing rain for three days to find whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a process of, of food through purpose and, and we're already doing it. And the, the benefits that it has on mental health are monumental. Hmm. And so having game animals to hunt and not just go and shoot roos in a paddock hmm. uh, would be a massive loss in the, in the mental health space. Sure, it definitely is. Um, when you think about it, you know, it's always been... This is old-fashioned, according to modern-day thinking, uh, you know, as far as sexism. But the thing is, it's always been a man's pride to be able to go out, procure food, and put it on the table. That, that's a basic thing that we've had for thousands of years. You know, man goes out, hunts, bring home, brings home food, and it's prepared, and the family sits down and eats it. Um, that's never been lost in the nature of humans, but it's, we're distancing ourselves from that if you live in urban areas. I think country people tend to have held on to that so much more because they understand the process. They live in the area where the food comes out of the fields. It gets processed, they eat it, and a lot more goes off to, you know, supermarkets for people to purchase. Um, but the nature of humans and man, realistically, is to, to actually, the pride in going out and actually securing your own food, it, it's, it's basic. It's as basic as it gets. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and we've probably got to understand that it, it's we should never back away from actually owning up to what we actually love doing and what we like doing and what makes us feel good. Um, with the veteran hunts type of thing, well, and the mental health of veterans. Um, look, if we go through that, that's probably steering a little bit away from hunting and probably getting onto a different subject. But... Um, the initial thought of starting veteran hunts was to actually share a lifestyle with veterans and a lifestyle that gives them something away from the daily grind that actually has a lot uh, in connection with their military service more than what you probably think um the skills you learn in the military probably 80 to 90 percent of those skills you're going to use out in the bush when you're hunting and so that's familiar to veterans all those things you'll be doing are familiar to veterans and it's probably in some ways, I mean, there's, there's, there's times when you're out doing exercises or on operations and you, know, you hate being out there. And that's no different when you're hunting. You know, you can be out there and you can be in really shit conditions. Um, I've been out in blizzards where they haven't been able to get us out by chopper and we've been stuck out there with no food for days. And, it, it, I mean, that's just part and parcel of hunting. But it's just you put up with those things. But overall, the experience is amazing, you know. Um, so mental health for, for veterans, it's about providing a, a break away from, from we all know what the grind is within the military, but the grind when you leave the military is for the, for the rest of your life. Your military career may go on for five, six, seven, 10, 20 years. But after that, the grind continues until you, once, uh, you eventually get out of work altogether. But that's a long period of time. So, you know, facing the grind every day, and, uh, and then family life. Recreation provides an enormous outlet for somebody's mental health, mental health space. 
So by starting veteran hunts, what we really want to do is get veterans out bush, connected to veterans again, not losing that contact with veterans once you get out the, the military, um, which I think is a huge problem. You know, like uh, you, got, you guys would know about that. Um, you've experienced that where you, you get out and yeah, you keep in contact with guys, but the thing is that there's, it's not like the everyday walk in and there's the, there's the chaps and they're all there. And, and what are we doing today? Yeah. hundred percent. You know, um, you, you lose that connection and two days a year on Anzac Day and Remembrance Day, it just isn't enough, you know, to actually formulate those connections again. So, um, I think getting people connected and it doesn't really matter how you connect them, whether you connect them in the gym. With, you know, like you guys do with, with your mental health app and creating a lifestyle for them to follow and maybe interact that way. Well, we're trying to just produce something where they interact out bush and it's, it's connected to a, a recreation. So, you know, I think by doing that, you, you improve people's lives across the board. Um, you know, if you're happy in your, in your home life and your family life and happy in your work life, if you can be happy in a recreational life, it's, it, it actually just makes it so much easier with those two aspects of your life. You know what I mean? Um, by breaking away and having the ability to break away from that grind every day, um, each year or each month, um, it just gives you uh, a boost. You know, so many people come out with us and, and they come back from that saying, I'm ready to get back into work or I'm ready to get back and, and you know, connect with my family. Um, yeah, there's so many things in that, hey, because... Yeah. It's an excuse, like the, the, the inexcusable reasons why you don't, like, uh, you know, someone's birthday, like, oh, mate, I'd love to catch up with you this year, but we're really yeah. busy, you know, the yeah. kids, whatever. Yeah. Uh, the inexcusable reasons to catch up, which we found, was, you know, the, the reasons where everyone would come together for was yeah. funerals and fucking weddings and bucks parties. So yeah. we're like, well, someone's going to have to die first or yep. someone's going to have to get married before all the boys get back together yep. and catch up and go and have a good time. So let's, and we're running out of people to get married. So marriage is a shit idea. So <laughs> funerals, it is. So you're just like, oh, well, let's do so, funerals. So what you're saying is really, there's only one of those three options you're interested yeah. in. <laughs> but no, to go it. shooting, to go out and go and yeah. have an activity where they enjoy going and doing it, they're mm. learning new skills. I would love to be able to. I don't even know what the terminology is between, like, actually turning a something I've just shod mm. into something that I can fucking eat I wouldn't have a clue I wouldn't okay. have I can, I've skinned a rabbit before but that's about yeah. as far as I've come with it do you know what I mean and I think yeah. learning that process and that's a skill that I would want to learn I think everyone would want to do it yeah and I mean coming together would, and doing that that yeah. reason to come together I think we'll talk about way. the difference between a sport and a lifestyle and I've always said that shooting as in clay shooting which I've done is a sport you know Rifle target shooting is a sport. Pistol shooting is a sport. Um, the Olympics is sport. Um, hunting isn't a sport in my mind. Hunting is a lifestyle. Um, I would never refer to something where I take something's life as a sport. Um, and that's just a terminology thing. I mean, it's used across the, the hunting industry worldwide is that the outdoor sporting uh, pursuits. Uh, I would say they're more like a hunting, uh, an outdoors lifestyle pursuit myself. But like I said, we, it, that's just being finicky, really. I mean, it, it's just a terminology, but we probably, when we face the general public, don't want to refer to hunting animals and killing them as a sport. I think that that just tends to throw the, the wrong light on it, you know, terminology-wise. Um, and it's funny how we've got to be quite careful about how we project 
hunting to the general public because slightly deviating on the subject or the subjects we're talking about at the moment, um, we have probably 80% of the general population that neither cares about hunting, goes hunting or is anti-hunting. We have probably a small percentage, five to 10% that are anti-hunters, anti-firearms and whatever. Uh, and then we probably have a 15 to 20% of the population that probably hunt. And that varies worldwide, country to country. But if you look at those type of numbers, as hunters, we don't realistically need to try and influence or change the minds of the five or 10% that are anti-hunters because that's their beliefs. And, I, and I, I have nothing wrong. I don't have a problem with that. You know, if, if they don't eat meat, they don't want to hunt, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, their beliefs are their beliefs and their way of life is in, they're entitled to it. Um, we tend to need just to get the, I guess, the acceptance of that 80% of the people that really don't have a point of view. And we need to just show them that what we do as hunters is uh, we do it in an ethical way and we, and we do it in a purposeful way. Um, yeah, so that's the, and that's the argument, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. Um, you hear about so what, so Native American Indians. You see it on TV, and they're yep. respectful of things they kill because it's going to provide food for them. Yep. Why isn't that the same? And why can't people see? Because you see people who go hunting, and they have utmost respect for the animal they've just shot because it's going to provide food for their family. Then mm -hmm. they you, they talk about remorse from shooting it. Yeah. Um, they don't or get not not guilt but you know they don't they're not yip shooting through the bush uh, yeah. and you know shooting for conservation know, i no. don't know we've got to be careful about that because american indians used to have like what do they call them like buffalo runs or they used to run like hundreds of animals off a cliff just to eat a couple of them uh, yeah, so, sorry sorry to throw a spanner in it but <laughs> Using yeah. using ancient civilizations as a benchmark to go, they were all really good people and they did things ethically. I don't know. Not always. Not always. I'm not. There's not I'm a lot not privy to that myself. I mean, but one thing that the natives people were adamant about doing is maintaining the fact that next year there would be buffalo coming past their particular area again. So it was always in their interest to make sure that what they did, they did to a, a standard or a point where they were continually fed. Um, they didn't hunt for the pleasure of it. They hunted for the need of it. Um, and, and look, that may have happened. I'm not familiar with it, but it may have happened in their culture. Uh, for what reason, I don't know. I've not, I've not, I've not heard of that. But, um, but I think any native people that you look at tend to have a more harmonious uh, interaction with wildlife and, and the land. Um, and that's all we're realistically as hunters we're trying to re-establish or to ex educate the people in doing. Um, and I think you'll see an awful lot of that these days outside of hunting circles as well, where we're just trying to get back to um, utilising livestock and, and animals in the correct way. I mean, we, we could talk for hours about, you know, um, the farming practices and things like that, and we're trying to clean the act up there. Um, that's no different to trying to clean the, uh, the hunting lifestyle act up. And, you know, if we're honest about it, we really do. There's aspects of our culture here in, in hunting and shooting that, that we do need to still clean up. And we'll, it'll always be an ongoing process um, because as new generations come into hunting, uh, how do they learn what's right and what's wrong and what's acceptable and what isn't it? Well, it's by people that have a, an experience in it and they pass that experience on. 
Because um, it used to be father, son would go out. Like, let's, like, yeah. let's be honest, you, your dad would go and teach you, let's go hunting. Yep. And don't be a dick, don't do this, don't do that. This Slap is around the back it. of the head. Yep. Yeah, and now there's none. And it's like, uh, you know, you split families, broken homes. Mm-hmm. Even your dad's not a hunter. He's a city slicker, you know, mm. corporate dude. And, he's, and you mm. get up, you join, and you're like, oh, I'm going to go get a gun and go and shoot some things. Mm. Without the rite of passage, without the correct ideas between why you're going hunting and what the reason is. I think that probably comes down to individuals like we said not not everybody not every male or female that that is born is probably destined to want to go hunting in their life um as the same thing for joining the military um not everybody wants to join the military um uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, admitting to the fact you join the military because maybe in some little corner of your life you want to test yourself um that's something that probably people tend to stay away from discussing um and i understand that fully because um they're circles that you can only discuss that issue in you know there's limited circles uh, and nobody else will understand that um if if you look at the fact that they talk about the warrior creed um trying to explain that to somebody that doesn't doesn't get it doesn't have it is impossible it's the same with hunting try and explain to somebody while you go hunting and if they don't hunt and have no concept of it or any interest in it you're probably not going to convince them to go and do it all you really want to do is get them to understand why you do it and then as far as hunters go we need to show that we are actually doing it in a civilized manner uh, and we're doing it for the right reasons Um, but that's you know that that also is an individual's uh, responsibility i suppose my, my views on hunting and my ethics will be different to yours um we have to uh, uh, understand that you know what what you see as hunting and shooting might be different to what i do i mean as a guide years ago in the 90s uh, i found myself guiding people that i'd look back and think oh, you know this this doesn't really this doesn't cut it with me uh that's the unshiny part of, of, of the guiding circles um, so you, I mean, this is guiding in Africa, was it? Yeah, guiding wherever. We used to take people wherever they wanted to go. So if people contacted you and wanted to go to a certain place, if you had options in those places, you could take them hunting. So we'd guide in New Zealand, Australia, Africa, wherever. Holy um, shit. So, you know, we had a, a place, a friend of mine, who was my partner at the time in the first safari business we had, uh, we, we hooked up a place in Montana, Montana and Wyoming on the corner of, on the borders there. For hunting whitetail and pronghorn and uh, mule deer um so we had lots of options to send people to places where we wouldn't necessarily go and guide them but they were just that they'd send people to us so once you're in those circles you actually you know um like we were saying when we first started chatting uh th- there's a whole world of different species out there for you to hunt and you may hunt with a guide or 10 different guides in your life uh and at any given stage, what you want to hunt, one of those guys will probably be able to provide you with a hunt for that. So you tend to help each other, you know, produce, produce those options, that's all. But... Um, so, where, like, where did you take people on... What are some of the, the memorable um, sort of hunts that you would have done? in? Because Africa has a draw as well to it. Like, mm-hmm. are we talking uh, rich guys going... Cecil trophy the hunting, Cecil the Lion, what's the... Um, in Africa, probably at the time that I was there last in the 90s, um, 
an average elephant hunt would have probably cost you between 30 and 50,000 US for the trophy. So that's not accessible to everybody. Who? Oh, can we can we just dig into that a bit? Who the fuck wants to shoot an elephant? <laughs> that doesn't make. Do you, do you eat them? Does anyone eat an elephant? I guarantee you, within about an hour of you shooting that animal, it's on the ground. It's all gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. From what? Yeah, so, so um, are we talking locals? Locals. Are we talking locals, locals. or? Yeah. Locals, locals yeah, but so. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Mate, if it moves, you can eat it. Like, yeah. they'll fucking people. If you've grown up anywhere in the world, like you'll, you're going to eat the local food. But you know, surely you you didn't take Westerners to Africa and guide them to shoot an elephant so they could eat it. Is that how it went down? Pretty well every day in Africa at the moment. There's a, there's, an, there's somebody hunting an elephant. And to to eat though. But it's good because they're doing. But they're doing this. It's it's through conservation and it's actually yeah. working. Hey, Nigel. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I was watching a program this week myself and Lana were regarding um, elephant poaching and it, it was predominantly about Uganda, Tanzania and uh, the Congo and, you know, and Kenya. Well, Kenya's probably got the worst situation with, with its wildlife <clears throat> and it has for the last 20 or 30 years in Africa. Um, populations are dwindling there. They, they don't know what to do about it. I mean, and it's the only place in Africa that you can't hunt at the moment. So there's no funds generated through hunting, which is probably the, uh, the, the pursuit that, that generates the most funds there um, to actually put back into the wildlife. So whenever you get wildlife, you know, whenever it ceases in a certain country, the wildlife will actually depreciate and the numbers will depreciate. That yeah, might be hard to understand, but I mean, where there's hunting for elephant, lion, the big five in Africa in the southern, in the southern countries, um, there's probably more elephant, lion, and rhino in those places now than there were pre-hunting. Because the money that's generated for that to actually put back into it. Well, if you yeah, want to because... stop poaching in a certain place, you make a, um, a situation where the general population there, the general natives, are actually getting more out of the fact they don't kill the animals than they, if they do. So the campfire scheme in, in Zimbabwe that was something the Safari Club were involved with back when we were there, um, every time an elephant was taken, something was going back to the general you know, community there. There was schools being built. There was whatever from the money that there was. You can imagine if you're hunting so many elephants, we got an option of hunting 70 elephants in Kruger Park back in about 93, 94. They wanted 70 elephant culled and 800 giraffe. And the contract was offered to a friend of mine who's a professional hunter there and the the premise was that they went there and they shot these elephant and giraffe and left them. Now, that's not such a major drama. Everything gets eaten in Africa, whether, you know, there's plenty of stuff there that'll eat it if you shoot it and leave it. The trouble with that is that if you shoot, if you bring in hunters to hunt 70 elephant, which you're going to kill anyhow, and you generate thousands and thousands, if not millions of dollars from that, you actually create an environment within a community and the wildlife organisations that can actually put that money back into it and, and do a lot of good with it. You, you don't have that if you just kill them. So the guy that took the contract that I knew actually in the end turned around and said, I'm not interested in this unless we can utilise the resource and make some money out of it. Uh, and that's not necessarily, yes, it does fund hunters and guides in Africa and it does fund a lot of other communities. That actually, you know, when you drive through an area, you buy food, you buy equipment, you buy petrol. 
those communities all benefit from hunting in lots of different ways, not just the actual trophy fees to hunt an animal. All right, can I can I jump in with some questions because I've, yep. I've got to push back on a couple of these points. I've got I've got to play devil's advocate. Yep. I agree with I agree with a lot of conservation concepts mm-hmm. with hunting. I love the idea of hunting. Definitely hunt myself. Yep. But as soon as you mm. if you go if you've got too many kangaroos and they're causing drama to everything, go and murder some kangaroos. Yep. Murder's the wrong word. I know. I'm using it for a point. Mm. That's fantastic. That works in my mind. It, it works. It's balancing the ecosystem. Yep. If you're going over there to shoot elephants and the conservation aspect is you get you give a lot of money to local communities so they can build schools, mm-hmm. that in my mind is fucking gross. Mm-hmm. What you're doing, capitalism is going to take over and it's mm-hmm. going to say, all right, we gave them money, 50 grand to build a school. Mm-hmm. Now they want to kill four more because they need 200 grand. Mm-hmm. So they're inviting people to kill more. Eventually, what's going to stop greed taking over as in humans it always does? Mm-hmm. And then we... we we end up decimating elephant populations because the local conservationists see the value in monetizing dead elephants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're asking me what stops that? Is, is that? is that happening or is that a possibility? So we come back to something that we were discussing in Australia, game laws. So game laws in Africa, they will know exactly how many elephants in the area they can hunt that year and that culls down the numbers to keep it land manageable. Um, those animals that are put up for tags, you can buy a tag as a professional hunter. You can on-sell the tag to a hunter to come and hunt it. The money's put back into the system. So at no stage does the general public determine how many animals are taken in certain areas, in conservancies in Africa. It's the Department of Wildlife that do that, and they do that through surveys. So it's when you have game laws, the, the whole system actually looks after itself, and it looks after the animals, because predominantly that's what you're there to do. Hunters are there looking after the animals. Um, maybe not the hunters on the ground themselves, but certainly the people like the, the guides, the professionals that do that, it's their responsibility to make sure they work with the Department of Conservation to make sure that land habitat meets wildlife numbers, meets population needs. And, and you've also got, yeah, to, that's... You've got to factor in the fact that in an ever-increasing world population, where land is getting eroded from wildlife land where they can actually live, and we're actually clearing the land and putting domestic livestock on, you need to counteract the financial balance of that with something. Okay, so like I was saying before, I don't always agree with um, certain aspects of trophy hunting myself, but I understand how trophy hunting is a conservation tool and the funds that come from conservation hunting go back into a system and make the system viable. Yeah, I see. And, and I'm, sorry, I mean, that, that, that's the way it's always been explained to me. And I guess that's the way it's been explained is that the money yep. from hunting, say you pay 50 grand to go and kill a lion. Yep. You're going to, the, the perfect world, you kill an old lion, he's on the way at anyway. That 50 yep. grand then goes into conservation of lions. Yep. That makes sense. When you explain it like that, tick, tick, I'm all for it. Agree yep. with it. Yep. When you say that, give me 50 grand, come and kill a lion. Well, I mean, as soon as you say elephant, I start to go, well. I don't know if I can do that. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you say, give me 50 grand, come and kill a lion, mm-hmm. that money's going to go into the local community. Yep. I'm like, oh, that's a slippery slope. When it's going back into the conservation of animals, yes, going into the local community. Yep. I mean, every or the, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like every mm-hmm. time someone has done something to funnel yep. money to boost the local community, yep. it ends up with greedy politicians, greedy warlords, greedy someone at the top of the food chain going, let's kill a couple more. They won't notice. And we'll get an extra hundred grand or we'll, we, we need to build a new whatever. 
mechanic for my gold Ferrari in the middle of Africa. Let's 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 kill another. Yep. Obviously, shit example, but let's kill a few more this year mm-hmm. so we make some extra money. Um, and that's where like I agreed with the the original explanation I got mm-hmm. for conservation hunting. Mm-hmm. Fifty grand kill an animal. Mm-hmm. That fifty grand goes to saving the younger animals. Mm-hmm. Good to go. When it goes into anywhere else, I just think it's a dangerous, dangerous game to play. So, what you're doing with the with the actually improving the the living lifestyle and and, and whatever of the general population and communities in Africa is you're actually investing them, and and they have a different concept on hunting as what to what we do naturally. You know what I mean? Um, where where our natives where we lived in Africa and where we worked in Africa, they. Their payment a week was, uh, or a month, was two milli bags of oats and um, and their medical for expenses, and that was it. They weren't allowed to eat meat. They weren't allowed to be given meat. And so, therefore, anything they got was from us. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and the reason that they brought in that type of rule was the fact that they didn't go out there and poach the wildlife because they're indiscriminate and they don't manage it. You know, we actually have created a world where humans dominate this land space all right so we've created an unnatural world for the wildlife to live in and so we have to actually manage that relationship these days between wildlife and human populations so it gets quite intense really when you're talking about how do you do this so by investing those people in the process of what you're doing with game management the the wildlife gets to live properly you can manage the area properly you know, we're hunting areas at the moment where we could actually manage a certain area, but outside that area we can't. Makes it increasingly difficult to manage those herds and habitat because outside of the areas we hunt, it's just open slather. And open slather doesn't work. Game laws do. You know, game management does. And so, therefore, yeah. if you want to manage the wildlife and the population densities of an area, and the resource and the way you're using it and using the land, and so much can be used for domestic stock. But we, when you inter, when you have wild animals around domestic stock, you no longer have wild animals because the locals will kill them. Yeah. They don't want the wild animals there. So we still want wild animals in Africa. I don't want to go to Africa and walk through a park and that's the only place I can see these animals. I want to see them out in the wild. But we need to maintain the wildlife numbers, but we also need to maintain the wildlife habitat. So to make the habitat, and this comes back to business as well, if business looks at that land and says, I can make more money out of that land by clearing it and putting sheep, cattle and goats on it, then the wildlife have no chance. All right? Mm. If we make the wildlife viable financially, we can maintain the habitat we can maintain that equilibrium between what everybody needs from that land and we can keep big business at bay to a certain extent. And that's the only way we're going to maintain wild herds on the planet, really, anywhere where you are. You know, literally- 100%, mate, I, I'm with you. I, I, I think that um, outside of the 1% of people who see an advert to save the lions in Africa and they'll yeah. go and give it and they'll go and give a dollar and they'll think mm. about it for four seconds so they feel yep. better about themselves yep. and then they're like no you can't shoot an animal because you can't shoot a lion and then they'll go on to the next mm-hmm. so- topic you know of the week it'll be let's stop throwing plastic in the ocean and um, uh, I think that 
conservation. I think everyone's on board with that one, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can all stop throwing plastic in the ocean. Go to Bali and have a look at the beaches there every night and see what you're looking at there, the dead fish, the the plastic bottle. It's disgraceful, man. You know, like we... We met friends there in, in Bali last year and we all bought, virtually sat there each night going, how do we solve this problem? What can we do to solve this problem? And, and then he went back home actually and it started a program where he's actually going to try and do something about it. He's a, he lives in Moscow and he um, he's an uh, investment guy in Moscow. And you know, investment in Moscow at the moment is, is a great business uh, and in Russia itself. So he's, he's doing rather well. So if anybody can do something about the... The plastic in Bali, it's probably him. <laughs> hemp hemp plastic, plastic, mate, that's the solution. Get him to listen to this, hemp plastic. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, if we and get... Make, make those responsible that are actually created the problem there to do something about it because, you know, the resorts are great, but the resorts are creating the issue. So, you know... Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, if you want to go right down the rabbit hole, the resorts are buying plastic because plastic's available. If yeah, we, sure. We're, yeah. we're about a generation yeah. away from fossil fuels or oil, oil-based... Like petroleum-based fuels being being unnecessary, and once that mm-hmm. goes, plastic's got to find a new source. But I can't understand. We did, we had glass bottles and garbage and and brown paper bags. That was before 60s Caltex. Mm-hmm. That was that was that was as Texaco was coming online, mate. Mm-hmm. We had we had glass bottles and fucking paper bags and egg cartons, and now we went. 30 years of plastic, like, oh, this is really bad. Like, no shit. How about we do what we were doing in the fucking 70s? Yeah, but as it's yeah. everything in life, guys, if you can make money out of it and somebody sees the opportunity to make money out of it, it'll happen until the until everybody rejects it. We also had a, a steadily growing population until the mid-60s, and then it just went, fuck it, let's just triple every year. Mm. And it went crazy. Well, not triple, but, I mean, that's part of the hunting problem too, isn't it? The, it's not just hunting and killing animals. It's the fact that humans are encroaching on territory. Like year after year, there's too many people on this planet. There is. And we've got to live somewhere. Yeah. If, if we wanted to be honest, we're happy to manage animals. We're happy to manage land, but we're not happy to manage our own population size compared to the earth. And, and really, exactly. we're going to do something about all these problems fix themselves if we manage population size. Well, and how do you bring that, that conversation up? Of- China tried. China was like, let's have one baby policy. And mm-hmm. then they were dumping kids in dumpsters, mate. <laughs> uh, yeah. Bill Gates is about to solve it for us, mate. Don't worry. How, how do you solve <laughs> it? I think you solve it through education. Um, the, the need to have five and ten children these days, we don't tend to see families have that. And the reason being is because, you know, um, if you want to experience <clears> the, the, the child aspect in life, you can have one and two and get quite a lot out of it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I, th- I think, um, I mean, this, this is, stems back to the reason why I love to, to get into hunting is yep. it reminds, it, it reconnects me with the fact that humans are just part of the food chain. Yep. We're, we're part of the natural environment on the planet mm-hmm. and um, going out and being a slightly evolved monkey, still supposed to be an apex predator mm-hmm. and killing what you eat yep. is... I, I, we, we've, we've evolved to a point where in our, I, I feel like, especially with dudes and, and blue-collar kind of alpha-type dudes, it's yep. still ingrained in your DNA to need to do that. So going out and spending time in the wilderness, being attached to killing animals and eating them mm-hmm. is a necessity, like part of what how your brain's wired. And we're so, as a society, we're so detached from that. Yeah. And we've, we've got, if, if we could, I mean, perfect world, I don't know how this is ever going to happen, but if you've got every human on the planet to realize that they are not special, they're part of the food chain, they're mm. part of the natural ecosystem, then 
you you bring everyone closer to centre. You bring the, the yippy shoot right wing dudes who go out there and just want to murder everything. You make yep. them realise that they need to wake up to themselves. And you bring the guys who, or the, the vegans who don't want to kill anything, make them realise that, hey, wolves are out there eating food every night. Foxes are out there killing chickens just for the sake of killing chickens, not even to eat them, mm. just because they're a, a hardwired apex predator. Well, not really apex, but like if we if we could get humans to remember or to realise that we are a couple of hundred years ago mm-hmm. still living in the dirt part of the natural food cycle, I think that would make everyone kind of slowly come back towards the middle a little bit. No, I agree. Maybe. I think world I population know. is actually, I think the, the biggest problem is we're becoming more urban. We hear that all the time rather than rural. And we lose that connectivity with nature and what, what where food comes from. You know, you hear that all the time on TV these days. Uh, it's whether we can actually influence people to... Um, understand, you know, that we're still a part of that nature. Um, but I don't know how we actually change the, the world evolving into a more um, you know, urban-based society. So I, I don't know how we change that. Um, I, think, mm. I think with social media and stuff, it's starting to happen. Like, as I said to you, mm. Nigel, on the phone yesterday, people are starting to realise what they've been missing out on. And that, yep. like, for example, I take my little brothers fishing and they'll catch something. Yeah, you, you, they don't know what fishing is. They're just they're, my mm. little brother's like four or five, and as soon as they catch a fish, it's like the best thing they've ever done. And yeah. I, went, I went hunting with someone who's never been hunting. We shot a rabbit, and he was kind mm. of like, I don't know about doing this, man. And we shot a rabbit, and he was instantly. You could see his face was like, Yeah, mm. we just fucking shot a rabbit. We're gonna eat it. Mm. It's gonna be sick. And I was like, mm. Yeah, it's like it's hard wide, but when you are showing the path through social media, however you get there, with people like yourself who know what they're doing, do it ethically. When you get there. People go, oh, it's actually not bad. This is actually quite kind of good. And we're, mm. you know, eating what we're catching and we're doing what exactly what we've been doing for a, a fucking long time. Yeah. Well, I think if you've seen on TV now, there's a shift with chefs to actually in the last five years or 10 years to become more organically orientated yep. and actually go back to the land and show people where their food comes from, be more selective about where they get it and what it is and how, you know, how natural it is rather mm. than, uh, you know, Gen- genetically modified sort of food. Um, so a lot of those things are coming back. I think this COVID pandemic that we've had has probably helped people realise a little bit too about what's important. You know, we've not been able to travel as much, so we've sort of probably been more family orientated. Um, and, and I think a lot of people have actually, you know, been influenced by going hunting and, and looking to procure their own food in that time. I, I can't put a reason down to why that is but there's, there's certainly been a lot more interest from people that i know to do that a lot more whether they actually go out and do it or whether they're just inquiring because they're just generally interested but at least there's more talk and conversation about it um but like i said we're not trying to convince everybody in the world to go out and be hunters um mm. I, I don't want to convince people not to be vegans um I do, I do, mate. I do. I, I would we, love to convince everyone that veganism we, is terrible for your health. You know, we can't we can't feed the planet purely on meat alone. We can't feed the planet purely on on vegetables alone. So, if somebody wants to go out and eat vegetables, that gives me some meat to eat. You know, so I have no problems about them selecting what they want to do, as long as they don't want me to do it. You know, I think it comes back a lot. To, <laughs> it comes. Do back what you want to do. To, just shut the fuck up about it. I think that's yeah. the motto that we should be pushing in front yeah. of vegans. We are becoming a lot more as a, as a society. Sort of, you know, I want to tell you what to do, and, and this is what I do. So you should be doing it too. 
No, you shouldn't. Oh, 100%. You know, so if we can get it back to sort of like, look, I don't want to do what you want to do, but I'm happy with you going and doing it. Um, I think social media has had a lot to do with that. Um, I, th- I think um, your environment has had a lot to do with, with how you're raised, not from... So they talk about nature and nurture. Our mm. nature is to go, we are, we are apex predators. Yep. We evolved... Some of us. Right. Yeah, some of us. <laughs> some of us are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went overseas, and this is fucking super weird. We went overseas with one of the, one of the boys still serving, and we got on a big tech, and it was all good. We um, uh, achieved some life goals in that, that day. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I think two days later, we were watching the A&A, and they were slaughtering a cow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were halaling a cow. And I don't agree with how they do it because there's... It's not humane. They just bleed it out while it's mm-hmm. alive. Yeah. But I was like, oh, this is fucked up. And I was like, hang on, you just shot someone in the face mm-hmm. two days ago. And now you're a little bit upset because someone's killing a cow in front of you. Mm-hmm. Like that is pure environmental uh, conditioning. And people don't like doing it because they can see a packet of food in the shelf. Mm-hmm. Like it's social. It's your separation from the point of killing it. Then mm-hmm. you can be like, well, yeah, it is a cow, or it's just meat, and I've, I've actually have no association with the cow that was in the paddock. Hmm. I guess you're seeing it from your perspective and your upbringing. Um, the more you travel in the world, the more you see that how people do things differently, and the more you learn to understand that you know, look, maybe it's not the way you do it, but you probably should accept the way they do it. Um, and it is hard sometimes when you when you when you base what you're seeing as cruelty. Um, to actually say no. When I was in the in South Africa in the 90s and I was seeing how the blacks were treated prior to Mandela taking over, and we were there prior just before the elections, and I was working with a bunch of people out in the bush, and um, the way we were treating, or I wasn't, but the way that the blacks were being treated, to me that, that just seemed all wrong. I, I had a real big problem with that, and I'd voice my opinion about it. Uh, which didn't always go down very well, but it was just too bad. Um, it was brought to my attention that you just can't come into the country and within two weeks ascertain how the whole thing works and then expect everybody to work to what you believe. You know what I mean? You've got to go into a place and understand why things are the way they are. But that comes back to being a little bit ignorant and a little bit self-important and going there and thinking, I sh- everybody here should live the way I think they should live. And everybody should do what I do. Um, I think we've just got to be a little bit more tolerant about that. Um, I learned that a lot from going to different places and just going, oh, you know what, I've seen that. It's not really what I do, but that's cool. I'm not doing it. You know, they've been doing this for years. And maybe sometimes I don't understand the reasons behind how this culture has, has, has developed. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, um, like, uh, uh, for instance, so horses, I think me and Adrian yeah. went shooting down um in new south Don't wales kill horses mate and, <laughs> that's a bad uh, topic at the moment <laughs> yeah we well we went down and we, we were just going to go shooting um for deer down uh and sell this horse and it was like a glade it was like a glen from a movie there was sunlight coming through mm-hmm. maybe i remember it romantically or not but <laughs> differently and there was these horses in this pa- in this sort of little glen and we're like I can't fucking do it, mate. I cannot they, shoot They horses. were clean, like that light brown, pure, pristine Brumbies. Mm. 
you you kill them, you can have nightmares for years, right? Yeah. But but the Dutch will. I think it's the Dutch. They eat fucking horses straight up. They're like, no, we just eat them. It's part of our diet. I'm so like, you guys haven't eaten horse? Never. I've eaten. So that's the thing. So this is where this is where I get um, conflicted. I'm like, I went and walked into a, a Mongolian restaurant in Switzerland. Mm. It's where they cook. Where they're cooking the stuff in front of you. Horses on the menu. I'm like, yeah, I'll try some horse because mm. it. I didn't have to look at a horse. I had to look at a strip of meat in front of me. It meant pretty nothing good, to me. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. It tasted pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I'd do it again. Yeah, but yeah. pulling the trigger when there was a horse in the cross, says, oh, mate, I don't know. Yeah. Killing horses and elephants. And again, that's the thing. Like, I'm sitting here right now thinking if someone came in here right now and said, hey, I've got, I got some elephant steaks out there. Do you want one? I'll probably be like, yeah, I've got to experience that. But if someone came in here and goes, hey, do you want to go and shoot an elephant? I'd be like, you're out of your fucking mind, mate. <laughs> Not a chance of killing an elephant. At the same time, I'm, I'm fully aware this is my argument on the other foot when I say to, like, my mum, for example, walked in a couple of months ago with, with a new rifle and she look, looks at me like this. What are you going to do with that? Mm. I'm like, um, I'm actually going deer hunting next week. And she's like, oh, why would you do that? Mm. And, like, She's out, and I go through the whole conversation of her going to restaurants, eating venison. It's the same thing, and she's like, "No, it's not." I'm like, "You're an idiot." <laughs> Yet at the same time, I've got, I, and I, I think that way for all kind of game meats that I would eat. Mm. Yet horses and elephants, for some reason, my brain just can't flip the switch and go, "Yeah, you can pull the trigger on an elephant or a horse." Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Oh, I had the same situation uh, with a zebra in Africa. I probably wanted a zebra more than anything. Yeah, it was all egotistical. I wanted a, a rug on the floor. You know, that was, I'll, I'll own up to it. That's, that's what I wanted a zebra for. I didn't want to shoot it and eat it. I just wanted that lovely, pretty, pretty rug. And um, got there. And being a horse owner from years ago, like we had horses when, when I was young, um, I never thought it would affect me. I had no idea that when I fronted up one day to shoot a zebra that I'd have this, shit, that's a horse. And it gave me that look. And I've never shot a zebra ever. I had an opportunity that day and other days as well, many days to shoot a zebra. And somebody, one of the pro hunters would say to me, great one, there's a lovely one. And I'd think, that looks just like all the others in the pack. You know, to me, that's, I have to justify why I want to do something. And that's very much goes back to what you said about elephant. Look, you don't have to, because you're a hunter, hunt every species that's huntable. Yeah. You have to have your own ethics within that and draw the, the lines where you want to draw the lines. You know, you might not want to uh, hunt a lion. You might not want to hunt a, a grizzly bear. You know, I, I know a chap that guided for grizzly bear for two years in Alaska, and he came back and he said, I don't ever want to hunt a grizzly bear. And I said to him, why not? And he said, because it's probably one of the most underwhelming hunts that he's ever experienced. And, and I could say the same about lion. Lion aren't scared of humans. So a lot of the time you walk up to them and, and the guy says, shoot that one, you walk up to 25 metres away and you shoot it. Mm. To me, that's, that's, that is a hunt, but it's not my hunt. Uh, yeah, and and yep. that may change in time or it may change over the course of my life and I may view that differently. But right now, and even at times when I, had, when I was there, it didn't really occur to me to want to have to do that and to prove myself as a hunter or to enjoy hunting. Um, so that was the species I didn't look at doing. Would I do it in the future? I can't say yes or no. My, my views might be different. And if I thought that that hunt and that animal was probably going to die soon and I'm going to add to that community and the whole system of conservation and ecology, 
if I'm going to do that by taking that animal, and, and the hunt was a real hunt where we're walking through the bush and we're really looking for bushbuck or something like that and this lion comes upon us and we have the opportunity, I can't say I won't do it, but at this stage I haven't. And it doesn't probably come on my radar at the moment as wanting to actually go and do something like that. I've got certain species I'd love to hunt in the world and lion probably aren't on that, that list at the moment. Uh, but I don't have to justify why I don't want to do it. It's just your own personal preference and your own ethics. You know, so like you, I said, that may change in time. Do you like to handicap yourself? And, and <coughs> uh, so you have your, and uh, mate, fuck, we're going to talk. This is phenomenal, mate. Uh, so two things. The first one is you, uh, I think getting young kids on some of your programs, mate, you get some young kids to go, 17, 18, naughty kids think they're killing it in life to go, mm -hmm. right, well, we're going to go for a bit of a walk and we're going to do some hard things. I'm going to teach you some skill sets. And then at the end of that, you're going to grow from it. And I think learning from you would be fucking phenomenal. So that was a statement, not a question. But this question is, uh, handicapping you yourself <laughs> while, you sh while you're going shooting. Like, I mean, uh, it, with your ethics and with mm -hmm. the, your weapon selection and with your terrain, how you do it, is that something that comes into your wheelhouse? Like, is that... Um, I can probably answer that a couple of different ways. One is that I'm doing everything I can to not handicap myself because whenever we deer hunt, we realize that with the animals, everything's in their court. They have all the advantages. They live that bush day in, day out, all of their life. They live in the wild. Excuse me, guys. Just turn this off. Um, but they live in the wild. It's their, it's their domain. It's, I'm entering their domain on their terms and I have to beat them at it. So the, the competition and the challenge is by all means always there. I don't have to handicap myself to try and do that by choosing the wrong caliber or restricting myself to distance or, or whatever, you know, using inferior binoculars or hunting a different way to which I'll be, I know will be the most productive. So no, I wouldn't handicap myself in that way. Um, I, I'm a fly fisherman. I love fly fishing. I can catch fish with a lure in places that I choose to fly fish, which is I don't always get fish fly fishing, but I choose fly fishing because it suits me. I love it. Um, in that way, I'm handicapping myself from catching fish. In some situations, in others, fly fishing works over other forms of fishing when you can't catch them any other way. Uh, in the streams in New Zealand, they'll, there's fishing where you fly fish there. If a fish are taken certain species, like subterranean uh, insects, that particular day, or that's their lifestyle in that particular area, um, I won't catch them with a lure. I could throw lures past them all day. But if I change the correct fly and fish it at the right depth at the right time of the day, which I've actually observed, I can catch that fish. So once again, I'm not handicapping myself in that regard but I'll fly fish when it's harder to do than other forms of fishing because I like fly fishing. So I will handicap myself sometimes to create a challenge, but in hunting quite often, you're, you're doing everything you can to not handicap yourself because you need those extra points, you know, to actually make it, to try and be successful. Um, you know, deer are very flighty animals. Well, places we see deer where they're hunted and I've noticed this this year because we've taken veterans hunting more. And I've, and I've taken veterans in the past, but concentrating mainly on veterans these days, um, they seem to think that they'll be able to walk up to the animals 
and shoot them. And it's a big um, surprise to them when they realize that, why did, that animals, why did those animals bolt and they're a kilometer away? I said, because they smelt you, you know? And it's like, well, I, I really didn't think that, you know, they, I thought we'd just go out in the bush and shoot some animals. It's like, well, everything wants to live. You know, nothing, nothing's going to turn up on the day and go, hey, shoot me. You know, they all want to live. So therefore, they, like you, use all the, all the terrain, the, 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 the climate and everything to their advantage to try and stay alive. You're trying to actually kill them. So whether that answers that question, you know, handicapping? No, I don't. Um, the challenge is already there. And the challenge for every species is different. So... If you hunt 20, 30, 40 species in your lifetime, that's 20 or 30, 40 different challenges you'll take on that are all different. Fuck, yeah. What's, uh, and so what's the optimal... Like, so you're walking in. What, like, what does a shoot for people who, and myself, that haven't done it, what does a shoot feel like when you're, when you're walking in? Is it a two-day walk-in? Is it you jump off the back of a ute and you walk for 20 metres? Or, you know, like the stalk and mm. then the shoot and then do you guys butcher after you've shot like like tell me how how the whole process works okay so it's all species dependent hunting is species dependent so from the time that you choose what you want to hunt then the preparation starts to be successful and the preparation's 50 percent or more of the hunt so before you even leave your home you're preparing all the information all the equipment all the knowledge you need to go out and be successful on that hunt. You'll know that from a military point of view. If you're going out to do a mission, it's all prep before you go. Yes, some of it's going to be ad hoc on the day as things change, but you're going to have everything covered before you go. And hunting's the same thing. If you, and this is why it's quite relative to, to veterans and ex-military personnel, is that they'll relate to that quite well. The fact that a lot of the work they do prior to going hunting is actually the prep work and the organization to make sure that you're successful, give yourself a chance of success on that. All right. Um, a normal hunt, say we're hunting tar in New Zealand. All right. We know we're going to have to go and live where they are. We've got to fly to New Zealand first. We've got to, first of all, find out how we take guns in and out the country legally. We've got to have some ground knowledge there when we get there we've got to have people on the ground that actually live that place to tell us where the herds are living where the animals are living because if we go hunting there for that species if we've targeted that species and we go there um i know guys that have been there many times and not seen a tar or not had a chance at hunting a tar because they haven't done that groundwork or they haven't got all these things already organized um, so we'd go there, we'd, we'd jump on a helicopter, we'd fly out, we'd fly out to a dock hut possibly, or camp out, fly camp out, probably somewhere around four to 6,000 feet. Um, if we're hunting in winter, we'll sleep on the snow, or we'll sleep under fly sheets and we fly camp up in the mountains. Um, we'll climb to seven to 9,000 feet, depending on where they are, and we'll do that each day, unless we're fly camping up high. And the weather will be dependent on that. If you get a chance in 10 days to get a shot at an animal, you'll take an animal and we'll cape it out there and then. Then you come down to the question where you said, what do we do when the animal's on the ground? If we want the animal for meat, I'll butcher it totally different to the way that I'm going to cape it out if you want to mount the animal as well as get the meat. So looking at an animal 
Uh, and a lot of guys have found this this year when they're, they're really interested in the butchering and, and the caping and that type of aspect of it. If you want to cape to mount, like you can see these little fellas behind me, that's called a shoulder mount. If you wanted something like that, we're going to have to cape the animal out. And our first determining factor on how we start is, is if you're going to mount the animal. If you're going to send it to a taxidermist, keep that animal for, for whatever reason that you want to do and put it on the wall, okay? We'll actually start caping from the top down, okay? Uh, oh, sorry, from the, from the bottom up, all right? And we'll actually ring the legs, go up through, uh, and we'll cape it out so that we can actually, at the top part, we cut the animals. It's a bit hard to describe, really, but... Um, so on a, on a shoulder mount like that, nothing from the bottom is, is cut up towards the chin. We'll cut from the top part and go up between the antlers or the horns at the top, then we go out there and we take the whole thing out from there, and we end up with a flat piece of cape. Uh, then we'll take the, the skull and we'll cut a section of the skull off, with, which has the antlers and horns attached. Uh, they're the only things that we use in the actual remount because the rest of it's all polystyrene. Okay, and then the cape just slid back over it. If you're butchering for meat, we'll probably do it the other way around, but then there's two options on that. If we're going to take the guts out and we're going to hang the meat, put it in the back of a truck because there's a truck handy, we can get to it and we we'll take it back and hang it up and we'll leave the cape on. We'll just take the guts out, we'll, we'll cut it underneath between the right, right down the middle and we'll actually open up the chest cavity and we'll take all the, the entrails out. If we're doing it in the field, I'll start from the other side. I'll actually go along the top, I'll open it from the back. We'll take the back straps off, we'll take the back legs off, we'll leave the guts and the carcass there. We'll take the front legs if we, if we haven't damaged them too much and we'll take any neck meat we can get. But generally then you leave the animal as it is on the ground and you walk away from it. Because if you're walking 20 k's out, you don't want to be carrying that whole animal. No, so what, what, what's the weight you would be carrying out? Uh, I know it's dependent on the size of the, like, you know, you shoot an average size deer. Yep. What average weight are we talking when we're humping Just well we like shot uh, i shot a red deer in new zealand in 92 and we we backpacked in about probably 12 k's into the mountains to get that and we were up there for seven days um and we we virtually carried what we needed food everything salt of the lot uh so we're talking probably three kilos of salt uh to, to salt the cape um we took the animal on day three. We backpacked that animal out. We took as much meat as we could. And he was 52 inches in antler length. So that's a huge red deer. Um, probably we're carrying out 50 kilos of meat and head. Sorry, how much? 50 kilos. And we're taking that on top of probably the 40, 50 kilos of stuff we were carrying in. So we're carrying a fairly heavy packs to come out with. As well as going in with, really. So, yeah, you guys will know all this stuff. You, you, you've carried some packs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know. that's because I got told to and I got hit with a stick if I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, it's all relative. I mean, it's like, yeah, if you're backpacking in, you could be carrying easily 40 kilos of stuff, easily. But you might be carrying 60 to 80 kilos out. Um, <laughs> and then you might be doing it two or three times if it's a big animal. You know, it's so, hunting... Hunt a moose in Alaska, you might have to backpack back to camp three times to get all the meat back to camp. And the incentive is you leave the head last. The incentive then is to have to go back that third time to get the head because if you're trophy hunting, you're making sure you take the meat out first. Ah, gamify it. I like yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. If you get back to camp after two days and you're that knackered, you go, I'm not going back for that third lot of meat. If the head's the last thing and you're really after that, that's what you'll go back for. So there's... So, the, so what's your favourite animal to hunt? Like what... Or what's the hardest hunt? And then what's your favourite animal, like your most enjoyable animal to hunt? Um, probably... I've had this discussion with people lots. Um, it's, it's a very common discussion around campfires. Um, the hardest animal to hunt is every animal. Because there's no, it's no easier hunting an elephant than a rabbit. Because all of those animals want to live. So most elephants are hunted from 25 to 30 feet away because you've got such a small target of area to actually kill them with. They've got a, such a small brain and the brain shots realistically from the side, the only one you're going to take. So you've got to imagine you've got a stalk within 25 feet in thick bush of an elephant. If your first shot's not good, then your hamburger, he's coming to get you and he'll stomp you into the ground. So that's why professional hunters are there to back you up. So if your first shot isn't good and it's the shot you get, they'll shoot straight away and that animal will be down. It's to protect you. You can't do an elephant hunt without in employing two professional hunters and one of them has to have a minimum amount of years experience on big game. And that's done for a particular reason. And that's why the costs are involved because, you know, um, a cull element, cull elephant in, in those, in the nineties was probably 30,000 US, a trophy animal would have been 40 to 50, like we said before. Um, that sounds like a lot of money, but there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Minimum elephant hunt, probably 21 days. So, you know, you've got to get people into those areas. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people and a lot of moving parts and cost to get that to happen. Um, and then, like I said, you want to generate as much of that, of that margin to go back into the ecology and the what are you shooting an elephant with a fucking hand a fucking naval cannon or i think that my my carry rifle in those days was a 375 holland and holland magnum um but that wasn't even legal in some countries for elephant uh, the minimum standard is anything over four caliber so you're talking a you know jeffrey or a gibbs or something like that big calibers of 470s things like that um these, these are like finger-sized bullets, but you, you need that sort of... I mean, let's face it, elephants have been shot with very small calibers in Africa when they've been poached. But ethically, uh, you put all those things in the right places if you're going to go and try and do that. Like I said, it's it sounds like a really easy thing to do to walk up to such a big animal, and and it's a huge target, you think, when in fact it's probably one of the smallest targets you're ever going to shoot. And so a lot of people that have these, these ideas about elephant hunting, they don't necessarily understand elephant hunting, you know, and the danger in elephant hunting and a lot of the things that go into it. Um, it, it does sound like it's probably one of the easiest hunts. It's from people, I haven't hunted elephant myself, like personally pull the trigger, but from those that have, uh, I believe it's the the most nerve wracking hunt of all. Because you can imagine you're trying to shoot the one elephant in a pack of elephants and you're hunting to within, and plenty of stalks fail because of the, the wind, the fact that there's so many animals there in that herd and one of them sees you and it's not necessarily the one that you're hunting and then the whole, the whole herd just go and you might not see them again for three or four days. 
So you spend a lot of time looking for the correct animal. Um, and you want to take out the animal that no longer is really of any use to that herd. Uh, and the same with everything else. The red deer I shot in New Zealand in 92 was um, going to die that winter because he had no teeth left, his antlers were going back. Uh, he was in that phase of his life. If we hadn't uh, taken him, he would have died that winter through starvation. So to me, that's the perfect trophy. Um, I had, this, this is the bad side of trophy hunting. And like I said to you before, I understand trophy hunting. I understand how it fits into the conservation tool and the whole method. But we'd have people who would call us and say, I want a certain animal and I want them this size. And they'd actually tell you exactly how they wanted this animal to look. Uh, and these are people that trophy hunting to them means the trophy they get for trophy hunting. So it's not the trophy they go out and hunt and they get it on the ground. It's the trophy they get from the club they belong to for taking the biggest trophy that year of that species. These are the people I don't understand, but I understand the dollars that come from those people uh, account for much more than anything else in that conservation program. So it's a, it's always a, uh, a trade-off with trophy hunting as to what you accept, what you understand, what you're willing to do, and how you understand how that money from that becomes the financial need for that conservation project. Um, and that's not always easy to convey to the average person because they don't know all the moving parts about what makes that happen. Um, I've had plenty of conversations with people that are anti-hunters and some of them have become quite friendly towards hunting after a, a few conversations with them. And it's purely because they, they now understand better than they did before what, what we need to do to actually preserve wildlife. Um, and sometimes... Yeah, it's like we bushwalking to, with a gun or... Yeah, uh, we have to sell sometimes uh, some of our morals and that type of thing or what we some people perceive as, our, perceive as our morals to make the funds to keep wildlife viable. And not everybody understands that. And that's unfortunate because the animals are always the ones that get disadvantaged. They always lose out because of that misunderstanding. Um, so, you know, for me, it's important to sit down with people and, and talk to anti-hunters more than it is hunters because they're the people you, you're trying to get to understand on how things work. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a huge topic, hunting. You know, it's not just the fact that we all get out together and they're in the campfire and we've all got guns and we're all going away for a week and we're all hoping to hunt a deer or a goat or a pig or rabbits or whatever. There's a lot more when you look into it as to how do we maintain this lifestyle? How do we make sure that in 10 or 20 or 30 years we have the animals and we have the opportunity to still do that? Um, so when you start looking at that, there's so much more in the conversation we have to talk about. Yeah, didn't President Roosevelt was the first one. So they were doing buffalo hunts in America mm -hmm. to the point of absolute extinction, wasn't it? There was like, yep. uh, and his first order before he was even the president or before he made it illegal was yep. he set aside millions and millions of acres of, of conservation land mm. to protect. And he was an avid hunter himself. And he was the first yeah. person that set aside land for national parks. Yeah, he was the instigator of formulating the concept of national parks in, Af in, in America. Uh, and that spread worldwide. 
And people look at some of those old guys that actually did that sort of thing. And they, and a lot of these guys went to Africa and they went on big safaris and shot one of everything or two of everything. And in this modern era, they'd be deemed uh, irresponsible and unethical for doing so. But a lot of these very people were the ones that instigated programs and schemes that actually is the reason why we have animals in certain places today uh, and, and herds that have come back from extinction. So the, the, the conflict between being a hunter and being a conservationist and a lover of wildlife, some people don't understand. It's not a conflict that hunters have a problem with. I mean, I, we often have people say to us, hey, why did you go and watch those foxes playing around in that paddock? and photograph them and myself and Lana last year watched these four pups with their mother playing around the den and we were watching from about 400 meters away and, it, and the hunter side of me says stalk within distance and take them because this year they're going to kill lots of lambs but the wildlife lover said no let's just spend this morning and forget hunting and photograph and watch these animals having this enjoying life and I didn't have it in me to actually try and to change things that day, you know, to let those pups play around with each other in the sunlight and watch them and watch them interact with each other is something that hunters actually, if you don't enjoy watching that sort of thing and enjoy wildlife and respect wildlife, you probably shouldn't be hunting. Because I think... Yeah, so is it is is this the same as when you're young, generally... Mm -hmm. uh, pre-university university on the you know through your tertiary education yep generally you'll be predominantly left-wing left-wing socialist as you grow up you learn rules and have possession and become more right-wing mm -hmm. is this a journey that happens through the political spectrum and then and then as a shooter do you have to go through the younger um more open, less regulatory, just shooting and going out and being ridiculous. And then as you get older, do you evolve into a uh, an environmentalist, effectively, and just an environmentalist with a gun and a conservationist and a lover of things? Is it a journey or can you just straight up start that process where it is? No, it's a good question. I think um, I think you're always a product of your environment. So through university, through school, through those early years in those environments, you'll probably be subjected to a more different point of view than you would if you were brought up on a farm and you spent your whole life growing up there. So you definitely are a product of your environment. Uh, are you more reflective in your older years? Yeah, you definitely are about just about everything in your life um, because that, that is a certain aspect of your life. I'm 61 in December. So... In the last 20 years, I've become so much more reflective than I was in my first 40 years on the planet. Um, and I'll probably be more reflective in the next 20 if I make it. So um, so I think you're definitely a, a product of your environment growing up. And if you surround yourself by the right environments, I think you'll end up being a totally different hunter to if you didn't, you know. So I think it's important for older generations of hunters to pass on certain standards and beliefs about hunting um, and also the responsibility aspect of what a hunter is um, that's something that i'm looking at addressing now with people that 
are probably coming to me later in life, in their 20s, 30s and 40s, and want to learn how to hunt. And it's like, how do I fast track this knowledge where they've got to go through all that procedure, like that early years where you didn't get to learn those things? How do I fast track them to understanding what being a hunter is and the responsibility you have to, to the ethics of it and to being responsible for making sure that wildlife thrives as a result of your hunting rather than is decimated. And then, you know, once again, I've culled for a living too, so therefore I understand that aspect of it. And let's not say, maybe let's not put it in the same vein as what like hunting and culling are different things. When we go out and cull a thousand goats or 2000 goats for a farmer, in an area he can't get to, but it's, you know, it's having some devastating effect on the land. I don't look at that as hunting. That to me isn't hunting. It's a job I have to do. I don't enjoy it and I do it. I've got a, a job coming up where I've got to go and cull some kangaroos uh, for a farmer. And the only reason I've taken on that responsibility of doing it, and I love kangaroos. I mean, I've spent so much time just watching kangaroos in my life and photographing them. And they're one of my favorite animals to actually watch and understand and study. Why did I take on the job of shooting the kangaroos coming up? Because I know somebody's going to do it. I'd rather do it and make, it, and make sure it's done properly. And so, therefore, I'm willing to do that. But it's not something I'll enjoy. It's not, it's not my hunting instinct. It's just a job I need to do because they're having an adverse effect on, on the orchards where they're living and their numbers are getting out of control. So culling's different to, uh, to hunting. Hunting and the ethics and the responsibilities of a hunter that's something you've got to understand, and I think. So this is and 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 leading into that, this is what annoys me. Yep. You can go out. I mean, cu- no, no. As in culling and hunting, I'm I'm down with it. Hundred percent. I've done. Yep. Um, but if you want to go trawling or netting for fish or mm. uh, just line fishing, mm. um, and you are literally there's no scope. You drop your line in the ocean, and especially when you go on a charter. You yep. drop your line 30, 40, 50 metres, and you get a bite. You don't know what the fuck's on the end of it, whether it's uh, undersized, oversized, whether it, whatever it is, whether it's a take or non-take species. Yep. You reel that thing up so fast that it doesn't get bit by shit, so it doesn't get eaten by sharks at the mid-level. Mm-hmm. It blows its lungs, and you pull it up. It's undersized. You throw it back, not even allowed to take it. Mm. So you, you, you throw it away. Yep. That's fine. So we talk about like the seven steps of, you see that old photo where there's like, uh, there's a column and, and there's the old style of where there's plants and then there's fish and then there's animals and obviously humans are at the top of this cylinder of evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? But fishing's acceptable. Fishing's perfectly acceptable. Or we can go and trawl. We just drag a net through the ocean mm-hmm. and we'll pull everything up and we'll pull mm-hmm. it into the boat. But, but, but going hunting uh, being selective about what you're shooting, what you're taking, uh, or doing it for a reason, I can't understand that. That is that to me is purely based on uh, a naive society that's that's in a pigeonhole. Well, I think you're probably you're crossing over into different sort of things there. I think business is something where they mass fish for. Um, and they don't too, worry too much about the environment. It's about getting the, 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 the quantity of, of, of produce in. Um, as a fly fisherman, I guess I'm attracted to that because it's more of a hunting of a fish, individual fish. 
Yeah. We'll look out and we'll go and try and find fish in areas. We'll, we'll understand the rivers. We've got to learn about the rivers. We've got to learn about the the food that they eat and at particular times when they eat it. So you're hunting a species. You're hunting a particular fish quite often in a pond or in a, in a, in a, a flow. Um, and then you're going to work out how you're actually going to get that fish. And that's probably why it appeals to me more is because I'm actually hunting a species. I'm hunting a, or a particular fish. Um, so the hunting aspect comes into it there rather than just procuring fish for the food table, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, like spearfishing has, has yep. a, a, like uh, me and Keegan and Adrian, we all spearfish. Yep. Uh, and it's poorly. Poorly, but we poorly. do it. <laughs> <laughs> I go underwater with a spear gun and come up and someone else feeds me fish. That's, that's how I spearfish. <laughs> yeah. And I panic when I see a shark and drop my knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my <I'm> knife. <laughs> I gotta tell you, a knife's gonna be no good if it was a shark. It, it's Mate, it's all you got yeah. when you already shot a fish and your spear's out in the water and you're trying to drag it in. Yeah. Mate, yeah. if, if Fanny can punch him, I reckon we can stab one. You reckon? Yeah. It's, uh, mate, it's, it's, it's a machine gun psychological, that three inch knife mm. underwater. Yeah. It's gonna get through the height of a shark easily, isn't it? Underwater. Mate, oh, I, mate uh, it doesn't matter. As yeah. long as it keeps me up here, like, yeah, I'm yeah. safe, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm dead. Well, I've probably done 100 dives in South Australia, around the South Australian coast, and I haven't actually seen a shark yet on those Fuck guys. Off. Yeah, that's good. Down in South Oz, you got the big one. They've seen you. Well, they've seen me, all right, probably, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've probably felt that at times, and I can't see a shark, but it's. But then again, I've dived with sharks in Fiji and uh, on the Barrier Reef. But we've actually gone to places where there's sharks and where we can dive with them. So, um, but yeah, just out in the open waters, not looking for them. Yeah, haven't haven't seen a shark in those dives. Um, nah, my first time I went spearfishing, I thought I was the shit. I'm like, I've got my camouflage wetsuit. I got my knife strapped on my arm because I'm gonna be able to stab a shark if it bites me. I got my spear gun, and I'm like, I'm going for it. And I saw we saw a reef shark first, mm-hmm. um, and I was like, when you. I don't know what it is, man, but it, it, I think it's it's a an image in your head, or maybe once again we come to programming. But my asshole was doing fives and fifties. And I was like, <laughs> Fuck me! And then uh, <laughs> we had uh, we had a mate. He had a he had a he speared a fish, and it was on the end of his his gun, and he was trying to pull it, but it had gone into the reef bed, so he was trying yeah. to pull it out of the reef bed. And then these reef sharks. We didn't know. I didn't know there were reef sharks at the time. There was probably about six or eight of them started coming around and they're only meter fuck it i don't i don't give a shit what they say about water but that meter long shark looked like four meters to me <laughs> mm. uh and then it's all magnified underwater 100 percent. i I, yeah. I didn't have a spear left shot the spear gun off and all i had was a knife and it come near me i'm like i'm gonna stab this shark and it's gonna it'll die obviously and it's gonna bleed out and then i'm gonna be safe and i stabbed this shark with a, knife, a little tiny reef shark that was swimming around that didn't give a fuck about me at all. It was more interested in the shit. Stabbed it, and it bounced off the shark's skin, and I'm like, mm. I'm fucked, and I'm getting out of the water. <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing this. But they don't do anything. The black tip, little black tip. No. Nah, we've had them swimming around underneath us quite often in, in on the barrier reef, and they're no real problem. Nah. Um, we dive with bull sharks in Fiji. No, nah, you can and have they, them. Uh, they come down and you can hand feed them. Um, but you've also got to be super careful, you know, like you've got to have eyes up your ass there for sure. Yeah, there's no turning your back on those little puppies. Um, and when you go down there to dive with them on the reef, you sort of, you see them, 
you know, accumulating down the bottom and you think, well, I've got to come back up here yet and get into this boat, you know, and that's when I'm at my most sort of vulnerable. But it's a great experience. If you get to Fiji, do it. It's great. But there's a dive on the central coast of New South Wales I want to do with the uh, grey nurse sharks in the caves. Yep. And that's it. Oh, whereabouts? Terrigal, I think it is. Yeah, Terrigal. It's, a, it's like a big cave system and they all just sleep yeah. in there. Yeah, and you, you go and dive, uh, you go into the caves and they swim past you and they swim out and in and out of the caves. Um, I reckon that'd be awesome. That could be a uh, January hard reset location. That's Terrigal's got the, the, the army accommodation on the beach. Yeah, right. Now that, now that we can't go, oh, sorry, I'm probably talking about stuff that no one even knows what we're talking about. So part of one of the programs we're going to run is, is to take first two weeks of January every year to take a couple of boys that are doing it tough to Thailand because yep. um, we've got a few networks over there and just off the piss, no anything other than training, yep. snorkeling, just living the, the healthy lifestyle. And now that obviously COVID's fucked that up for everyone because we can't leave Australia, we've got to find, yep. it's actually probably a positive. We look for the silver lining, we'll find parts of Australia that we didn't know it yep. uh, had value before. And mm. Terrigal's one of the ones at the top on the short list because they've got um, fairly cheap military accommodation on the beach we used to use for army rugby and Terrigal's a wicked spot. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? So we might have to might have to get you over, mate, and go take the boys shark diving. Oh, mate, that'd be great. We've got family over there because my wife's from that area. Uh, so we quite yeah, often nice. go back to Sydney and, and, and see the family sort of thing. So, um, no, it's definitely a dive I want to do, but... Um, I'm tending to dive in warmer climates these days. Um, I did the cuttlefish dive in South Australia where the water temperature was nine degrees. And, um, mate, I did a 48-minute dive there and I was freezing. And, and I stupidly only took a five-mil wetsuit with me. How, um, how thick? Five mil. Fuck, I've been in the tropics for the last 20 years, mate. I didn't think they made wetsuits that thick. <laughs> <laughs> no, you... If you do the Wyala dive, don't bring a five mil wetsuit, mate. You'll <laughs> <laughs> freeze them off. I guarantee you. They're um, it's a great dive. Well, there was two to three hundred thousand cuttlefish on a on a reef three hundred meters long, uh, where we did the dive, and it's a great dive in South Australia. I guarantee you'd love it if you did it. Um, but yeah, it's freezing. We, we had a there was a bunch of forty people from the Adelaide University up there, and they had people with them from universities around Australia come to do the dive. And they came down to the water's edge and looked like space suits. And we're all sort of giggling at them, thinking, you dickheads, what are you doing down here in those bloody things, you know? Um, they, they look like big alfoil buddies, you know? Um, and so they got in the water and they're in there for an hour and they came out and they went, that was a great dive, you know? And I'm like, shit, man, I'm freezing. <laughs> you know, we walked down to the water in our little five mil wetsuits with no hoods and they're, they're looking at us thinking, you guys are nuts. We're thinking, hey, it's only a five, six metre dive. You know, what are you going to worry about? But man, it was my, my young ladder you saw earlier when we set this thing up. He was uh, 12 years old when he did that dive with me. So he spent, I think, like 25 minutes in the water and he, he had to get out. I took him out. He was freezing, mate. Um, but once I said, it's, it's a great dive. It really is. It's an interesting dive. But it's, no, it's definitely... stupid how, how much the, the temperature changes from that depth and even when you go spearfishing in in the tropics, the, yeah. the change in temperature for over six metres, and that's about as deep as I can go before I panic and blow my load and mm. <laughs> come back to <laughs> You what? Yeah, depth, depth, <laughs> depth doesn't have the same effect on me. 
<laughs> yeah, got, I don't need more diving, I think. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely doing I it I just wrong. go down and get yeah. uh, my neck shrinks, mate. My ears just hurt a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I come out with a knee when I come out, when that sort of water temperature, you know. it's. Um, but that's that, the, the only time you can do that dive is, I think, the first week of July, which is like peak winter here. So it's it's bloody freezing, you know. You're, um, but no, we'll definitely have to think about that terrible dive. I'd be up for that for sure. So yeah, where, where does good. where does um where are you taking veteran hunts from here? Like where does it go? Because um, I've been following your stuff religiously yeah. on on Facebook. You've got yourself a new Instagram uh, name, and mm. and it, it, I think you're starting to draw some some of the actual younger boys to you to the cause, mate. Yeah, look, the the idea of the veteran hunts thing started as my exit from the RSL was primarily done through disappointment. Um, I was involved with the RSL here um, on the executive before I got out two years ago. Primarily because there's a lot of things we wanted to do within that and we found we really just couldn't do it, but we also couldn't attract young veterans to it because I don't know what it is, whether it's the same in the eastern states or as it is down here, but you mention RSL down here and they go, man, what the fuck has that got for me? There, there is no interest whatsoever. And one of my challenges that you know like sometimes you get told things you just want to make sure that it changes so that that sort of just instigates in me a, a need to make a change in that so i set about with a group of four or five other guys here trying to get involved with the rsl and trying to change that philosophy so we could make it something it wasn't down here locally and then if it bred from there and changed you know by different branches it did but we wanted to make an example of the branch we had and after three years, I realized it was just a no-go. It wasn't going to happen. So it was a matter of getting down, getting out of the RSL and putting that time that I was spending with that into something on the ground more useful and actually had more of a productive outcome. So Veteran Hunts was a, probably a natural progression for me because what did I have to offer current young veterans? And I'm talking young from ages mid-20s to mid-40s because that's still young for me. So um, what can I offer them? What can we, what, how can we interest them in getting involved and connected? So hunting was a thing. I was having dinner with Maddie Williams uh, last year at Land Warfare down here in Adelaide. And Mark Donaldson was there at the same time. So we, we went out to dinner after that. We just sat there having a chat. And I just said to them, I've got this idea of a concept with veteran hunts where we just, I think I had the name then. I just used the name, but it wasn't the name. And I said, okay, I'm thinking of starting up a veterans uh, like group where veterans just connect and we'll see how many of them are hunters and they want to get together and go hunting together. Um, and so it started there. The, the, the concept was to try and get a few guys connected and just see whether we were going to end up with like 10, 20, 100 or whatever. You know, we never expected to get 100 guys connect with this thing and because we had no idea on how many veterans or young veterans are hunters uh, and how many ex were existing hunters and how many wanted to learn. You know, I think now we've got something like 1,200 people over the two forums that are connected to the social media. And that's, that's a surprise. I mean, especially with the Facebook thing. Um, where does it go from here? Um, hopefully connecting more veterans, but not just Australia-wide, but worldwide. Uh, integrating them into a 
a hunting ethic or program where we teach them conservation-based hunting uh, so they can understand the whole principles of conservation-based hunting so they can have a, a purposeful recreation where they can connect with veterans. So they, it's multifaceted. They get the connection that they need with veterans and the lifestyle that they're used to, but they also get to take on a new purpose in life with their recreation and try and do something good uh, and learn something in the process and get a lot out of it and hopefully enrich their lives. You know, I mean, as, as most hunters I've always known, veterans or not, they always say hunting and fishing and all the outdoors pursuits have always enriched their lives. Um, so it's a matter of trying to share that with them and, and, and if it can help them and they get something out of it, that's great. You know, uh, we, we've all had friends that have, that have passed away and committed suicide. Uh, I've had enough too many friends do that, uh, ex-military. And it's something that I don't want to see this young group of veterans go through because a lot of my mates were Vietnam veterans. Uh, I missed Vietnam by two years, but a lot of my mates, older mates, didn't. And so I've watched a lot of them go through the trauma of no support, um, what happens in their life, losing too many of them. And I don't want to see young veterans from Timor, Afghanistan and Iraq go through the same problems later on in their lives. We, if we can enrich their lives and make their lives easier and better, we might stem some of the problems that we've got now. So that's the reason behind it, mate. Um, and hopefully where we can take it. Yeah. Mate, that's... And I, I, I think getting people to, into doing hard shit again mm -hmm. uh, and be like, mate, we're humping in 12Ks. We're going to go shoot someone. It's going to be shit cold. And mm -hmm. The shared suffering, all of the, the similar things that happen, but mm -hmm. there's mateship at the end of it. Yeah. Uh, mate, I think it's a phenomenal thing. And I think it's going to take off. Like, you can see it in, in America. Uh, the bow hunting scene's going phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, the hunting for food scene is astronomical and i think mm. uh perhaps uh maybe we've superseded vegans um by just going and saying hey we're going to take things from food to table mm. and in the process learn some skills do some hard stuff and and mm. help some people that need to help um yeah it's a phenomenal program that you've got going on mate yeah thanks mate it, it, it'll develop as it like it started off with simple ideas but it was always, we started the safari business back in the 90s the same way. We started off with nothing. How do you build a business with no money, just ideas? And where do you go from there? So the, the plan and the model was already there with veteran hunts. It just had to be re, redone again uh, with that concept in mind. Uh, we started off last year with no money, no contacts, because I'd lost all the contacts in the industry. Still had a few, but nothing compared to what I used to have. Uh, so how do we provide what we what we what we can provide and and like it's growing quite well over the last 12 months um we've got some great options that we haven't been able to use yet that we will be able to show people next year um but in the end it'll grow i mean I, i'm fascinated and i'm proud of the fact that the people have got involved the amount of people at the moment because as i always say to people it was my idea and my concept but it isn't my program it, it it sounds corny, but it's it's everybody's no, program. No, mate, we're right up your we're right in your block hole, mate. Yeah, it's right. Yeah. It's everybody's program. Everybody that joins that program and adds to it makes that program better. So, you know, I, I'm not that many years away from going. I want to turn this over to somebody else, 
And I've already got young blokes here, that, young veterans that want to actually take over this. And it's a matter of building it and handing it on to them and saying, go for it, guys. Um, th this is the concept. This is where we're heading. And just, just drive it. Uh, and there's some really good young fellows here that are existing hunters that are veterans that have jumped on board. And we'll, they'll be doing some things with us next year and doing some of the on-the-ground on guiding. We'll just sort of guide them a certain way and how to do that type of thing. But, um, you know, you'll see their faces more on social media over the next probably six months, uh, especially leading up to next season's options. And um, so you'll get an idea on who they are. We'll introduce a few of them over the next few months. But, um, yeah, it's growing. It's, uh, it's getting interesting. My wife, I never thought she'd be interested in this, but she actually says to me when we come back, when's the next hunt? And she's not a hunter, and she's getting engrossed in this thing to the point where I think she's actually enjoying it more than I am. Um, she's taken on the photography and video role of it and she's gone and done courses so she can do that better. So she's jumped straight in, you know, feet first into this thing. Uh, and it's, it's made it easier for me to continue on and spend as much time as I do doing it because, you know, when, when your family's there doing it with you, you, you can, you feel less guilty about the time you spend doing it. Um, so it's made it easy. So, you know, a lot of credit goes to her as well, you know, like whatever it ends up being. Um, but just, uh, she'll often turn around to me so far and say, look at the smile on these guys' faces. That, that's it, man. That's what it's all about. You know, it's, um, there's nothing more, more rewarding than that, than what the, uh, and the reason for carrying on and doing it and making bigger and better. Um, and more opportunities is the fact that, I've already had guys turn around to me and say, thank God you started this. I really needed this in my life. And that's tremendous. That's just, that's what we do it for. That, that's exactly I think it's a one-stop shop, mate. I honestly yeah. think it's a one-stop shop, teaching mm. people, challenging themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's been a, have you, have you had much work with, uh, or um, with Adam Greentree and, and that sort of whole, the, the scene there? I don't know, Adam. What's he do? Hunts. Adam. No, he's a he's kind of no, he's a social media figure. He's um, mm. a, a, probably Australia's most social media known hunter. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, outside of that, I don't really know what he does. He hunts animals and eats them. But oh. other than that, you you got to understand, guys. I'm probably a social media novice. <laughs> I I got <laughs> dumped with the social media aspect of the RSL when we took over from the Vietnam veterans, and we said, look. We've got to modernise the RSL, and, and none of us wanted to do the social media side of it. And they all looked at me and said, "You do it." And I went, "Whatever." I didn't know what Facebook was. I didn't know what Instagram was, and that was probably four or five. Years. <laughs> that sounds like the RSL. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we need a social media manager. Let's give it to the bloke yeah. who's never heard of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and I was the, probably the best candidate out of all the terrible candidates. And so I said, "Look," they actually don't think they said, "You do it." I said, "Look, I'll do it." I don't know. Have you got a phone? It. Have you got yeah. a phone? Well, you're, you're one step ahead of us. You, you better right. run it. They said, I said, look, I'll, I'll have a crack at it. So, you know, I took over that side of it and, and that was it. It sort of started from there. But, um, but yeah, so, but apart from spending time on social media, watching other people do things, I just don't have the time. You know, we run a full-time business and that keeps me flat out. And any time I used to have, I don't have now because Veteran Hunts takes that up. Um, and then there's some family time and friends time to throw in there as well when we get an opportunity. So um, to sit there and watch, unfortunately, I have to say it, podcasts, you know, <laughs> and things like that, 
I do not get the time. People will say to me, hey, did you catch up so-and-so's podcast? And I went, no, nah, I've got no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, well, uh, there's only really one good podcast to listen to, mate. There is. You're on uh, it, so. Having said that, I was listening to Joe Rogan and Steve Brunello while I was waiting for Yeah, that'll be the one I'd listen to, mate, over this yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was listening to that for about half an hour before we come online here, and I, and I, and I thought, let's have a look at a podcast. I think I've listened to a couple of Brams podcasts with good people. I want to catch up Dino Parkinson's podcast. He's got a second one coming out. I think that came out last night. Yep. I want to have a look at that. So there's certain things that... I will find time to look at, but generally speaking, do I search stuff out to see? Uh, it has to be brought to my attention and it has to be more important than what I'm trying to do right now. And, you know, realistically, work and VHA, they're the two important things. So they've got to be pretty important for me to drop that and, and sort of change my focus. So, Mate, well, I think it's going to fucking blow up, mate. Um... I have absolutely no doubt, and and we look forward to working with you in the future, mate. Definitely, 100% yeah. After COVID, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, hey, I guys, we'll... I've got to ask you: Is the stomp happening next year? Yeah, mate. So I oh, see. Good segue. All right, I've got to throw some big plug out because yep. this actually links into hunting. One thing I'm kind of learning to do at the moment: um, got a bow. Never been bow hunting. It's it's coming. I think I've said this the last four podcasts. It'll be coming next week. Still hasn't turned up, but it's on its way. All right. um, I really want to put emphasis in uh, to Swiss Eight, like putting programs out, teaching people how to get in touch with people like yourself to get involved in hunting. The people who want to go out there and hunt their own meat, and then to go because at the moment, like like we've already touched on, there is a big farm to table movement going with with kind of celebrity chefs and, and high level chefs yeah and i think we need to move it from away from farm to table to to go and source your own meat game yeah. meat and then learn how to cook that properly yeah and that's kind of the closed loop that i'd love to kind of promote to people and um hunting your bag plug into what you're doing perfect uh and all the way through to cooking we're, we're going to get big on the barbecue kind of space we've got this campaign kicking off uh, for Remembrance Day. It kicks off next week, actually. We're going to run it for a month, and uh, it's called A Barbecue to Remember. Yeah. And it's it's kind of... the All the RSLs have got behind it, like federal government's got behind it. It's, mm. it's going to become an official uh, Remembrance Day piece. And, and it was kind of a simple thing to put together because the, the barbecue is the old-fashioned campfire. It's like people used to come together around the campfire, tell mm. stories, talk shit. Blue-collar, rough-around-the-edges dudes would come together around a campfire, and now that's kind of faded away that we all live in cities. So the barbecue, especially for Aussies, the barbie is the spot where blokes can come, hover around, talk shit, have a beer, kind of, that is their shrink. Mm. You get the boys together, and it's like the, the, the old-fashioned barber shop, like the boys hanging around a barbie. Yeah. So if we can go, like, and I see great value in hunting, if we can close that loop and go, let's teach people how to hunt, find source their own meat, kill it, butcher it, have a barbie, bring your mates in, yep. show people, like, I don't know, toot your own horn that you've provided for everybody. That's a good start too. And then just have a few beers and talk shit. Yeah. Um, I can't even remember what I was going to do with this. I just, as soon as I saw the opportunity to plug the barbecue, I was like, yeah, just get on it. We're but talking about the that, stomp, mate. <laughs> so, oh, the stomp, yeah. the stomp, the stomp. So next year, so this Remembrance yeah. Day, yeah, this, I'll get to the stomp in about 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> That's all right. I've deviated a few times during this potty too, so don't worry. Oh, but as soon as I get excited, mate, I forget completely what I was talking about yeah, and I go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this year it's all about the barbecue because COVID kind of killed the stomp for us. And, and next year... Um, we're definitely putting a stomp together in some form. We've got we've got a bit of a plan in the 
um, in, in motion coming together uh, as soon as DVA signs some checks and, and help back us in this program. Um, we've got to get to every military base around Australia and do some training courses. So yeah. uh, whether we walk or whether that last 12 months has mean, meant that mine and Mex's knees are too bad and we've got to recruit some young diggers to do all the walking for us, that's mm-hmm. probably a preferable option. But we're definitely going around Australia at some stage. And I think... Uh, if this Remembrance Day campaign uh, goes off like I think it will, we'll, we'll run it again next year and potentially do the run around Australia and, and culminate with the, the finishing point back in Sydney for Remembrance Day again next year. So, yep. um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely... Keegan's just disappeared. For Still, you know. uh, we, we, we've definitely got to pull that stomp together. It's something I'm pretty passionate about. I, I think um, Digger's walking uh, to, to raise awareness is a dirty word these days but to to kind of put ourselves on the map in front of all the young veterans that need these services that need to know what's available out there because mate i can guarantee you as good as um the program is that you've put together and as good as the marketing is 99 percent of veterans haven't heard of veteran hunts yet and that's that's fucked like there there is services like yours out there that are going to be massively beneficial for young veterans and they just don't know about it so um, that's what the stomp was for us. It was kind of a let's let's put Swiss Eight on the map and let's use that as a as a platform to promote mm-hmm. all these other uh, veteran services out there that are actually doing some good that no one hears about. Because unfortunately, in the moment, we only hear about the big ones and they're all doing fuck all. So mm-hmm. um, it's yeah, sad. It's, I think- it's very sad. But I mean, when we looked at opening this last year, I looked at probably getting NGO status and that sort of thing and non for profit that sort of thing. And at that time, I I was led to believe there was something like 360 veteran organisations in Australia and it was growing daily. And I thought to myself, man, how many of those are actually right. doing something? It's about 3,000, I think. No, it's about, there's, a, there's nearly 4,000 now. Is that so, yeah. yeah. That's unbelievable. Now, yeah. you spread the money, and I'm not, that's another thing altogether about, you know, throwing money at problems and hoping they'll solve themselves. Um, we could get into that, but that's, that's politics and you know, we probably want to deviate away from politics as much as we possibly can. But, um, but no, I think we need to get into that. I think the mental health aspect of this, and, and that's, like I said, the reason why we started this, it, that, that's a deep down need to actually do something about it, especially on my behalf. Um, but I, I know it would probably mean a lot to you guys too. Um, and there's a lot of people out there with a passion for it. We need to get the groups together that are actually doing something and, and form that network so we can actually let everybody know what's available. I mean, like you said, I, I do see now we've been going for tw- uh, five or six months with the amount of people that have hooked in already. In two years' time, this could be ridiculous. But it, it's, it, it, it's, it's encouraging and, it, and it's really um, inspiring to sort of to see where this will go because I... The ideas, we've got loads of ideas for it, is whether we can actually get some sort of funding or backing or benefactors to help us do what we want to do. Um, but it was always a thing where last year when you spoke about things to people, they went, so how do you do it? You go, well, we haven't done it yet. You've actually got to get it on the ground and prove you're going to do it. Once you've got a year mm. or two of, of proof of, of life, so to speak, that you've done what you said you'd do and how beneficial it is, we're already seeing more people contact us to say, hey, can we help in some way? Hopefully that'll, yeah, because we don't have any way of funding this any other way than that. So 
it's virtually yeah, ridiculous. mate. I 100% agree with you. Like the, yeah. the the concept of if you build it, they will come. That is the the best way to lose a fuckload of money when you start a business. Mm. Um, mm. But in 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 the in the passion project space, in yeah. the kind of which we're in. It's the only way because you can't you can't go to big investors, you can't go to government and pitch them with an idea and go, hey, back this idea because they're getting hit by ideas every day. Mm. Most of them are dog shit, and and you just kind of have to do what you've done mm. um, and back yourself and, and roll it out, and then eventually now you've got the runs on the board and you've shown mm. that it works. And, and whether whether you're listed as one or not, you, the Veteran Hunts is a mental health organisation. Like mm. identity and purpose are two things missing when when everyone leaves the military, and you teach someone how to hunt and find their own food, that is a purpose-driven project. So, mate, I think it's fantastic. And as far as funding goes, um, we've we've got fuck all money as well at the moment, but we have got some stuff in the pipeline that we're going to find ways to fund these monthly projects next year. So definitely when we can do come together and put some planning together, we'll, yep. we'll come up with ways to, to, to fund whatever your program costs. Mm. Um, we'll pull the funding together to run at least one, hopefully two a year because mm. I want to go on a big hunting trip at least two times a year and I'm sure there's hundreds of veterans out there that want to come too. I get, so that's yeah, enough excuse for me. I want actually up into those frozen peaks and I want to climb you around the place. <laughs> yeah. well, uh, <laughs> You'll love uh, it up that there. Stuff. You'll love it. Yeah. Well, we we actually took a couple of boys, um, a couple of veterans and a couple of RSL execs mm-hmm. up up Kosciuszko last okay. week. Yeah. Uh, for the same reason, it, it was it, the weather was shit hours. Yeah. And it was to take them up there and do something that was at the time completely fucked. Mm-hmm. And everybody for every minute of those eight hours wanted to be in fr- in a hot shower in front of the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Mex said before, shared suffering is what uh, makes brings people together all right, bonds people. getting 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 yep. 10 dudes and sitting in a warm room and watching netflix for eight hours no one's going to bond over that no. but you go and put them out in a place where no shit and i, I don't want to over exaggerate this but we had about 30 meters visibility because it was the, the world's shittest day that we went up there we're lucky we had a dude with a gps who'd actually plotted nav points without him if someone walked <laughs> off no shit if someone walked <laughs> off too far or if someone dropped off, we would have lost blokes on Kosciuszko <laughs> yeah, and right. that would have been an embarrassment we would have had to shut up shops we say it would have been done <laughs> just because of shame mate yeah. just because of shame but no shit oh, it was wow. when we got to the top we had a mountain guide um, one of the boys Gaz's dad uh, used to teach people, teach the, the Threadbow Rescue guys rescue, yeah. um, he, he by an accident of losing car keys had to come down and go with us and he loved the opportunity mm. if he wasn't there I think we would have been in a world of hurt because we got to the top and he's like, boys, you know, like it's currently blowing 140k in our winds and with wind chill, it's about minus 30. And we'd prep for like a, a mid, like what is it, um, coming into spring. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 did, we didn't take supplies. Yeah. We took yeah. fuck all with us. And we're like, it's good. And even the night before, sorry, I'm getting excited about a story again, so you better pull me back on track. But the no, night before, the bloke, the bloke who was going to navigate... Um, had his GPS and he was plotting coordinates and I went up to him and I'm like, mate, it's Kosciuszko. There's a footpath and fucking road. There's the street signs the whole way up there. Mm. We got we got 20 metres off the top of the last chairlift and I looked around. I couldn't see a thing. I'm like, I think we might be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and thank, no shit, the whole way, he's just checking his, oh. his GPS every 50 metres. But, oh, yeah, that kind of stuff, like going out, doing it a bit tough. Yeah. That's what brings people together, and every single person, especially these blokes from the RSL, the, the execs that weren't vets, um, 
they at the end of it, mate, there was it was emotional fatigue, but they came up and they're like, That is the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. And that's 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 what a lot of veterans are missing when they get out. That excitement, the the mm. fun stuff, doing doing tough shit with your mates who you know like have yeah. got your back. I think that's Oh, look, some of the best times we had with guiding was when somebody would bring along a child and we'd take the child out hunting for the first time ever. And it's a bit like what my wife said about watching people at the moment now with a smile on their face when we're out around the campfires. It's watching the kids with a smile on their face when they're successful for the first time in their life doing something really different, really outside the box. And that is amazing. Like we used to take groups diving and then... It was the kids that you always watched because they were the ones you got the most enjoyment out of watching their faces doing something when they came back up. My, my boy did his diving course at 12 years old. As soon as he, could, he was old enough to do it, that was the minimum requirement. He had to be at least 12 years old. Uh, so we got him into the water and he went and did it. And I think that was one of the things that actually established confidence in him at that age more than anything. That made, I always look back at that time and go, wow, that changed his life. Because the last dive mm. we did with him, the dive instructor said to him, and I went and dived with him as like just as, just to be there, but uh, the instructor took him on the course. And she said to him, you don't have to go in today. It's a shit day. It's really bad visibility. We can hardly see each other. So if you want to cancel this particular last dive, don't do it. He's 12 years old. He's kitted out in stuff that don't fit him because like he's that skinny and scrawny that the, the, the tanks don't fit him, BCDs don't fit him. And so it was just uncomfortable from the time, time moment that it started, you know what I mean? So it was windy, it was cold, it was like visibility up in the top part of the Gulf with the salty water up there, it's high, high salinity. So when you do your mask, take off and put it back on and, and clearing, it's just, it's just hell. He went through that last day of that dive and he turned around and he said, no, nah, let's do it, I'm here, let's get on with it. And I thought, fuck man, that is so different to what he's been like in the past. That, 100%. That has changed his life. He came out of that dive and he came up with us and the look on his face, I knew that was a turning point in his life to actually proving things to himself. It's a rite of passage. It is a yeah. thing that we've lost in society. Where I did people... that when I used to do, we used to do climbing uh, courses with, with schools, uh, like uh, private schools here in Adelaide. We'd take them out abseiling and we'd, we'd, we'd climb up rock faces and we'd abseil down and the look on some of the people, I used to love the ones that went, there's no fucking way I'm doing that. And you go, right, I'm concentrating on you. And, and I would get them up there nine times out of 10, the ones that were definitely not going to do it, I'd get them up and we'd do that 40 meter touch, you know what I mean? And come back down. And sometimes it would take me literally an hour or an hour and a half trying to get them to do that last little bit to get up there. And they were shitting themselves. And I was like, you know, what do I do? But you know, the benefit you get from that and the reward you get from that is so much more than the other 50 kids that just went up there and went, oh, this was great, wasn't it? You know, just that one or two that you really have to put the effort in to get them to do it. Oh, and it's almost blood, like you've blood. got to take the hands and put the next hand up, you know what I mean? But that's, Yeah, that's but they're, they're the ones that appreciate it the most at the end. Like you said, Jacko, the bloke, he probably hates me talking about him. He's, he's yeah. a young bloke. He's a marketing manager from Camp City. Oh, he right. came with us 200 metres up the hill. It was gassing. Like, you know when you go for a run, the first couple of hundred metres is the worst. So that's when you start to feel it and then your body's like, all right. I, I don't remember runs. That's, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's, he's like, mate, I don't know yeah. if I'm going to get up there. I'm like, yeah. you fucking are because yeah. we're, we're here with some boys that we're not going to say mm. no in front of. Yeah. Um, 
And we they, we got a spot. So like I said, there was the the bloke's dad who was a mountain guide. Um, Gaz's dad was was helping Jack across. And there was some shit bits. Like we we kind of got off course and we we're in snowshoes yep. on the steep hill and we had to traverse. So it's literally staring at your feet. Cause you can't see anything else. It's just left foot, right foot, mm. left foot, right foot. Fuck this, I'm going home. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Fuck this, I'm going home. Mm. But by the time we got to the top, as soon as we hit the top and turned around, you could tell like that. It's a different person coming yeah. back down the hill. Yeah, completely different. Oh, those kids that were abseiling, it changed their lives. And little things like mm. that. Look, it might not change big aspects of their lives, but it's the step that they need to take first. And that, as soon as they 100%. make that one step, the next step's so much easier, you know. The next the, challenge is easier. The, mm. the argument is to learn your internal dialogue and the negative chat is a, is a, is a piece of programming that's been put on top mm. and that generally, most of the time, you're going to keep moving forward. So you, which record do you want to play? Do you want to play Mex's best? Do you want to play Mex's top hits while you're walking up a mountain mm. uh, feeling good about no. it? Or do you want to play like sad? It is literally negative chat and it's, it's whatever internal dialogue is going on in your brain. Mm. Um, most people don't quit. And, and mm. that's what the movement piece of Swiss Eight's about. And, yeah. and, all the, and, and going hunting, all these things, walking up a mountain, the negative chat that is happening in your brain that tells you you can't do things, mm. that is purely your internal dialogue. You'll end up just doing it. You'll just suffer more because mm. your negative mind frame on it. Mm. <laughs> and if you can, and not all people can, and I'm one for it as well, is get comfortable with being uncomfortable mm. and, and go, yep, identify, here's a negative chat. Mm. Here's where I'm going to start talking myself out of it. But unfortunately, I'm going to keep moving forward, so I might as well get rid of this bullshit negative chat. Yeah. Some people are better at it than me. I went through 21 days of selection, and mm. my negative chat was, I want to quit, I want to quit, I want to quit, I want to <laughs> yeah. quit. Yeah, the, the best inspiration of that is to look for the people that are actually running the course and you just look them in the face and go, there's no way you're going to make me stop doing this. You know what I mean? That's just... Yeah. You, you take it personally. You pick somebody out in that course who's actually putting you through pain and you challenge yourself to prove them wrong. And that's how you get over those things. You know, you're like, fuck you. You're not going to stop me doing this. Uh, Carry me out. Hate is a motivator. (laughs) That's that's, that's military 101. Turn hate into aggression, into (laughs) motivation. (laughs) Unfortunately, we're going to unwind that and figure out how to turn that off. Because at the moment, when I get, when I'm like, oh, fuck this. It's like, nah, mate, use hate as a motivator. Yeah. the, the the Western world's not ready for all veterans to be using hate as a motivator. <laughs> Gets real messy real quick. All hunters. Yeah, all yeah. hunters, yeah. I hate those animals. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to die, you know. Yeah, that's, that's not, uh, a good, not a good look. We've got to keep that under under wraps. So, uh, but no, it's... Next year should be interesting if we're if we're uh, we've got rid of this COVID thing. Let's hope we have and uh, we can get together a lot more and plan some things. But uh, yeah, there's some be good things in the pipeline for next year. So hopefully we can sort of get them out there and start doing them. Um, we've got good people involved too. So you know, like was it you, Anthony, that said you knew Hamish? Yeah, Hamish. Yeah, I uh, did. Hamish a, is a good a... guy. He's um, he, he's got his kit all prepared over there in new zealand so he's uh he's one of the scariest guys i've ever met on the planet uh i think we did sub one sub one for him uh with him uh and 
the guy is he's a humble professional and uh he's a scary yeah. dude um yeah. and someone that you'd want his his business model and taking boys away to do his concept would be would be phenomenal mate uh, yeah. and so i think that the going forward linking up with you guys was a was definitely a definitely a positive mate well you've got to link up with people that you know when they say they're going to do something they do it and they're going to do it well collaboration right. mate uh, yeah. instead of competition is is yeah. is a motto that we're trying to change in the space yeah uh, easy to say hard to do yeah uh and we are fucking moving forward and we've got two speeds mate we're going forward or we're going forward with punches yeah so that's it yeah it's and gonna you know, be good the mate. two most important things when you're trying to do something like these things is is honesty and integrity you've got to maintain those two things at all times 100 percent. if you don't you don't maintain those if you drop those for one minute you'll lose your credibility so that they always have to be in the foremost of your mind you know like um have integrity and be honest with everything you do uh and then people will see eventually what what you know what it, what your where your heart is and that they'll believe if you believe you know but you've got to make sure that they understand what you believe so but no, you guys have got a, a great... I, I had a quick look through your, your Swiss thing before we came on so that I could, you know, drill you guys about it, but we haven't had time, so... But, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about your program and that because, um, you know, I think it's it's very useful for everybody that's involved in veteran hunts could get a lot out of what you guys are doing too, so... Well, it's proactivity, mate. And, and yeah. the object of veteran hunts is to give people skills before they want them or give mm. people a purpose before they want it. Yeah. Uh, or need it so that they can go yeah. back to it and go, well, mate, um, whatever the reason is, you know, you need to go forward for yourself. Yeah. And they're like, well, I don't really have a hobby outside of the army or don't have a thing. And but yeah. that's that's good to go. But um, yeah, yeah, man. Uh, I think if there's stuff coming up, especially uh, with, let's get you back on the show. Let's do some stuff around uh, the, you know, if there's hunting seasons coming up, if there's new laws put in. If yep. there's things that happen around the world, you know, you have new programs, let's get you back on. Let's let's keep talking it. Let's keep the engagement going and let's keep your program moving forward, mate. That'd be great, mate. Thanks for so your how do people on. how do people find your stuff at the moment? Uh, look, we're, we're actually looking at a website at the moment. We, we know we've got to go down that path because social media is very fickle. Um, there's aspects of social guy. media, especially when it's, yeah, when it's integrated with the hunting uh, you could lose your social media presence overnight, and if we do that, we lose the we lose the ability to keep these people connected. So we, we've got to go down the path of having other alternate means of doing that as well. So we've got to get those in place just in case. Um, it's preparation; just prepare for the for the worst case scenario. Um, so that will be the next thing that we look at doing. Um, Instagram and Facebook are the two things that they can get in touch with us. Mainly and what, are, what are your handles on what's your name on instagram so on instagram it's uh, veteran hunts australia underscore bha at that and on facebook it's just veteran hunts australia program uh both private uh, on that realistically we don't let anybody but veterans into the facebook page that's quite a backdoor sort of well it's, it's a closed shop really to anybody but veterans. The only people we have in there is a handful of service providers or experienced providers. So if we have somebody that are 
veteran sympathetic, but they can offer us an awful lot of hunting opportunities and they're people I know with integrity and honesty. Once again, we might bring those in, uh, but that's purely to provide opportunity for the, for the guys. And, and, you know, there's no reason why we should be scared of those people being involved. Uh, the Instagram one's a little bit more open to other people, like a group of hunters that come in there, or it might be gym people that have the same interests who are veterans or whatever. So there's a mix of people in that. Um, but once again, it's pretty well orientated towards veterans, hunting, health, lifestyle, that sort of thing. Um, and it's restricted to those. It probably always will be. We never knew whether we were going to open it up to the general public. It, at the very beginning, there was always two trains of thought on this. We, we keep it purely for veterans and we see how we can fund it that way. If we fail to fund it that way to the point where we're happy with what we can provide, the other option was to go guided hunts with the general public. And as we do in conservation, you make money from the guided hunts to put into veterans so you can actually provide opportunities for veterans at a lower cost or even in some Maybe. cases free. I know we're wrapping up, mate. If I can throw two cents in, have a, have a think about hybrid models because there is plenty of plenty of dudes with money out there that would love to go on a hunting trip with a bunch of veterans. And yep. at the same time, I hear it way too much. And the, the, the veterans are like, oh, I don't know how to speak to civvies. And it's like, you fucking do, mate. You're just hiding behind an excuse that you're a veteran. Like, mm-hmm. and, and putting together a program where veterans are mingling with civvies with the, with the same interests like like-minded yep. people just yep. without the military background that's yep. a that's a that's a net positive for everyone it is um, so that it might be it might our, be a funding model to to run that down that one, one of our preeminent sort of ideas within the rsl that we were looking at doing was involving the community so we actually opened up our rsl to um non-veteran members at the same mm. time and, and, and we increased like from i think when we took over this is our small RS, rsl branch was i think there was 12 members when we originally went in and within about 12 months we had 118 members or something like that uh, because we incorporated the community as well and it was about a 50 50 mix but the idea was to involve the community because we need to change the community the, the 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 conversation regarding how the community view veterans and the only way to do that was integrate them and so that's 100%. one of the things we tried to do. That's uh, another story that it never ended up sort of carrying on from there. But, you know, we're, we're mm. into a better program now, so we'll just carry on with that one, eh? Yeah, no, that sounds good. So Facebook, Instagram, that's where to get you. Have you got any, any hunts coming up that you're recruiting for? Um, at the moment, you're into a downside of the season. And that can be uh, the reason seasons sort of come about is one bushfire. A lot of the places we hunt, yeah. landowners won't allow you on during bushfire season. Uh, the other aspect of it too is that animals go through a, pr- a process of where the, all the deer have dropped their antlers by now, so buck hunting isn't an option. The deer are all going about to calve, so you don't want to kill females that are about to give birth. So we go through a process where we give them time to actually go through their natural processes, and we start hunting again when there's a genuine reason for either hunting bucks or does, because there is certain yeah. times of the year we'll do one or the other. And that's, once again, herd management and what we need to do to sort of keep the herd viable and improving all the time. So uh, so we're in a bit of a downside at the moment, which uh, unfortunately a lot of the guys that don't hunt don't understand. They think that we can still go hunting every day of the year throughout summer. And they call me and go, hey, I'm in Adelaide uh, next Tuesday. Can we go hunting? It's like, no, mate, we're out of season. 
Um, surely, surely anyone who's watched Looney Tunes knows that there's hunting seasons. Hunting seasons, surely. yeah, yeah. <laughs> surely, for sure. Mate, I yeah. think what you just said then sums it up. Like when when you're talking about does and stags, and when they're yeah. in the ethics of the hunter and and moving forward. And I think I think you might have changed a few mindsets through the podcast if people can open their mind, listen to what people people are saying, and. Uh, I certainly think that hunting through conservation, I think you guys are the real eco-warriors and yeah. you're eco-warriors with guns, mate. Uh, and yeah. I think it's the next evolutionary step as opposed to just um, protesting, being involved in the environment, looking at an animal for 12 hours a day, studying, understanding the environment, caring for the environment so it's there for the future, protecting the herd so it's there for future generations. I think that's eco-warrior in itself and i think that you know you guys are the next evolution in it and it's been great to have you on the show mate and i hope to have you on again and uh we'll stay on after this and have a chat but mate uh nigel birch veteran hunts australia it's been great mate thanks very much thanks guys really appreciate Cheers, it mate. thanks mate